broadcasting under the night sky from the edge of an undisclosed jungle on the Gulf of Mexico. I'm Christopher Garitano, your voice in the night. For the next hour, allow me to be your guide into the bizarre unknown, the fantastic macabre, and together we'll journey to that borderland between fiction and reality, a place beyond all rational explanation. We are now off to the witch. and voice of legendary blues musician Robert Leroy Johnson. He was one of the most influential guitar players in rock and roll history. Johnson's eternal story is primed by an incredible legend. It's said that at one time he was a young musician with no considerable skill and then made a deal with the devil himself after a mysterious meeting on a Mississippi plantation crossroads. Most of Johnson's fame came posthumously and even early blues musicians of the day swear that the story is true. Were there musicians and artists throughout history that sold their souls for fame and fortune? Tonight's guest is a guitar player who may have had a similar encounter with the devilish deal. We'll hear his story after this commercial break. After these messages, we'll be right back. You are listening to the Off to the Witch podcast, where we explore that bizarre borderline between fiction and reality and all subjects arcane. Journey over to my YouTube channel and subscribe now at youtube.com slash at Off to the Witch for a variety of extras and special features, including the Off to the Witch mini docs with further insights on many of the latest episodes, as well as previews and behind the scenes of my forthcoming investigative series, Off to the Witch Presents, as well as the anniversary edition of my motion picture documentary, Montauk Chronicles. And follow us on social media all links are available at linktree.com slash garitano7, G-A-R-E-T-A-N-O-7. And stay tuned for more Off to the Witch. We've got to get out of here. I don't believe it. Yes, you can believe it. And now on NBC Saturday Night at the Movies, Kiss meets the Phantom. I'm your host, Christopher Garitano, and tonight's guest, Jeff Paris, 
grew up in a rough Chicago neighborhood. His only escape was to dive into rock and roll, particularly the music of Kiss and Van Halen. His heavy metal dreams of fame and fortune led him to the dark underground of the Los Angeles music scene of the 1980s, where he was faced with a choice. It's a cautionary tale of music, passion, and dreams. So here's my interview with Jeff Paris. I was a uh born in Gary, Indiana uh, in 1963, and my parents were quite young, but that ended about 10 years later. The, what I went through with my mom and dad's divorce uh, was like comic books for a kid would be the Raku Kiss, which, you know, they had the colorful posters and, the, and the, you could look at their albums and never get tired of looking at them, you know? It was like a, like a comic book. And here I was... 10 or 11 when, when Kiss really, you know, when they really first came out and then a couple years later, they got really big and here I am 12 years old and, uh, I'm in this divorce situation, uh, not knowing really what to think of that. And then the situation of a stepfather coming in that was abusive. So I spent most of my time locked in my bedroom looking at Kiss posters playing, you know, Kiss Live, Kiss Live 2 as they came out, you know. Had you experienced anything like Kiss before? Well, uh, you know, growing up, my mom, she had the Elton John, the the animals. Uh, and then uh, David Bowie was something similar as far as the theatrics, and, you know, the stage show. And then, of course, Alice Cooper, then he came out. So I knew who Alice Cooper was. But I couldn't really relate with the music because I was so young, you know, it was the Alice Cooper had some deep, deep music, you know, the lyrics and uh, and David Bowie also. But when Kiss came out, man, that was like a, a 12 year old head. You know, those guys were singing and playing to 12 year old heads. And uh, it was like a comic book adventure, man. And it, it was something that you could escape reality in. Uh, I don't know how old you are, but. You, if you were a Kiss fan, you'll know exactly what I mean by them taking you out of your everyday life, out of school, out of your homework, out of your neighborhood and putting you into this crazy world, you know, with the, the demon dragon and the ace the space and all that stuff. And it, it led me right into wanting to be a guitar god, you know, immediately. I I was just struck. At first, I thought Paul Stanley was the, you know, he was the main thing, but then ace uh, it, it just blew my mind. And here I am in an abusive, very abusive uh, situation with a, a stepfather from Greece, couldn't speak any English. And he, he was, uh, he was brutal to, to us kids, you know, and, and, uh, I would hide in my room and my mother would be abused constantly by him, you know, uh, much later in life, he just recently passed, you know, we never really sealed things or forgave or anything, but, old age mellowed him out, but it, the, the abuse was horrendous. And I would escape that by sometimes even hiding under my bed, playing Kiss. I would record uh, Kiss with a little cassette player, you know, with the little tapes back then. And then I would put the, the you know, the volume really low under my bed and, and play Kiss music with the pillow over my head so I could get away from reality because loud noise would get me in trouble. So yeah, it was the Kiss, it was the Kiss albums and the the Kiss posters that put me into the music uh, 
you know, into the music world that way. Yeah. And I, I think it was that escapist rock and roll that Kiss presented. I was also knocked out by them at a very early age, you know, seeing the Kiss Alive album cover with, uh, you know, Gene Simmons uh, with blood all over his mouth was just cool because I was into horror films already. So, but here's the thing that music inspired you to want to get your hands on a guitar. When did you finally get your hands on a guitar? I never, ever was bought a guitar. Uh, you know, we, we lived in a, in, a, in a small apartment complex. It was a kind of a poor neighborhood. I told you where I was from. And uh, so, you know, I would, it was really weird. I, I got into this habit of collecting beer cans, you know, in the summer. And, and we lived in this apartment complex. And I was actually a dumpster diver. And I collected beer cans, always looking for the older ones or, you know, and I put them in my room. And uh, one time I found a guitar body in a dumpster with a broken guitar neck on it. And I took that home and, you know, Kiss albums and everything. And I hung that on my wall because I thought, oh, this looks like something Paul Stanley broke, you know. This is something because he would break his guitars on stage, you know, at the end of the show, you know, with the drummer, bam, bam, you know, break the guitar and then throw it out in the crowd. And I dreamed of having one of those guitars, you know, I just dreamed so heavily that they were my day and night. In, in school, I, did, I would daydream. I'd bring their magazines, you know, the Kiss magazine, and put it in my textbook and look at it. And, of course, I failed school. But, uh, yeah, you know, I, I just became a, a Kiss fan beyond most other people. I decided I wanted to play guitar. And, you know, the best thing I remember about that was when I found that guitar in the dumpster. Later on, I found another guitar in the, in another dumpster that was one of those Tiesco guitars from Sears or, or Sears and Roebuck guitars, you know, and I, I took the neck off and I put it on that other body and I spray paint, I took the body and I laid it in the hallway in our, cause I remember I got beat for this. I, I put the body on the hallway carpet in the landing in our apartment building and I, you know, spray can from somewhere and I spray painted the body, you know, and left an outline of the guitar. And then I denied doing it. It was like, you know, I got, I got in so much trouble, my stepdad, but, uh, yeah, I put the neck on that guitar and then I put, I think I put some acoustical strings on it and the neck was like the action on it was like an inch off the, you know, the strings were way up off the neck. Do you feel that rough situation helped make you into a better guitar player because you had to get, you know, essentially get over those hurdles as a player, it wasn't comfortable. And well, what it did, and later I found out Eddie was the same way, even though he had classical training in piano. And you're talking about Eddie Van Halen, right? Yes, Eddie Van Halen. Okay. I'm sorry. Uh, what it did was, for Eddie Van Halen was, uh, he learned by ear on the guitar. And I didn't know that he learned this way. I didn't know of Eddie Van Halen yet. I, I was still with the Kiss thing. So you're in your youth. You're blown away by Kiss. You find this guitar in a dumpster. You make this makeshift guitar, and now you have that in your hands. And where I was asking you, I'm curious if the difficulties of having that makeshift guitar, it wasn't perfect, did that make you a better player? Did that begin because you have to get over those hurdles because your fingers have to be stronger? Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah. See, uh, having a guitar from a dumpster like that that's a Sears guitar they didn't have a truss rod in them, so the neck would, you know, the action would go way high off the neck. The strings would be way off, and you'd blister your hands up, and you really built a lot of strength in your in your hand and your fingers at a young age. 
to play a guitar that was difficult to play. So that when finally, you know, my first Fender Mustang guitar that was a professional guitar, uh, three quarter size, uh, I could shred on it by the time I got to that. But it was the, the, the Kiss records on the turntable that taught me how to play guitar. So I feel like Ace Freely really taught me how to play guitar. Never had a lesson. I think I had one lesson, if you want to call it that, and it was horrible. And uh, so I taught myself from uh, Kiss, from from Ace Freely's lead playing on the Kiss albums, back in the needle up, starting Dr. Love over again. The lead break on Dr. Love was the closest thing to the love of the guitar that I love, the sound, which was Eddie Van Halen later on, maybe Boston, uh, the, the lead playing that they had. And that lead break that Ace did in Dr. Love was incredible. And I learned that myself back in the needle, back and forth, back and forth, off of the record, thinking, you know, what a poor soul I am. I can't afford guitar lessons. I got a, a, a guitar from a dumpster. Um, my mom and dad won't let me play through an amp. My stepfather would, would, you know, he would not put up with that. And uh, do you, do you believe in fate, Jeff, you know, because you're in a dumpster, it must've, can you, I mean, like, how did you feel that day that you found a guitar, something you've been burning to get your hands on in a dumpster? It must've blown you away regardless of the condition that it was. I thought I, I, I was in a, in a horrible place in my life for other reasons also other than the divorce, but that my parents went through, but the abuse of a stepfather and the abuse he put on my mother that I had to witness and my sister and my little brother. I mean, some real abusive times there. And I escaped that abuse by crawling into an album. And so spiritually I put myself on stage with, with kiss and, you know, I, I kept that tradition going into my twenties in my late twenties. You know, that's how I, I got into Van Halen, you know, but it, I really taught myself how to play guitar from the recordings of Ace Freely. And it's funny that I felt so bad about that because years later, Eddie Van Halen uh, confessed to the same exact learning that that's how he learned how to play guitar was backing up cream records and uh, 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 black Sabbath records. He would put the needle back, put it back, put it until the album was ruined. It would, you know, put the needle back and forth to, on that solo spot. Eddie did exactly the same thing I did on those albums. And I found out later on that just about every guitar player did that. So yeah. Didn't many great guitar players learn that way? Wasn't Hendrix somewhat self-taught? Yes, but I just didn't know because I didn't know of any guitar players. It was like this thing I stumbled onto as a kid that no one else did. I just stumbled onto it and dove into it as a, like putting blinders on and headphones on from the abuse around me, man. And that's why I started playing guitar. And it was, it was more than just wanting to play guitar. It was like an obsession, a fetish. It was like nothing I've, I can't explain it, man. It was like, I want this more than anything in the world. I want to do what Ace Freely's doing. And it was really weird because I never got into drugs. I never done them. I never, I wanted to do it completely clear headed as Gene Simmons says he did. 
I wanted it to be done straight and in a respectful way, but I wanted to put this for something like eight, like uh, Alice Cooper did the same thing, but he did get into drugs, but Gene Simmons was, he put something together and then he was behind that, you know, I mean, it wasn't really him, you know, he, he was very well educated. He was a school teacher. He didn't buy into any of that stuff and that party and stuff, you know, you know, he was uh, into the girls, but, and he, he ran it like a, like a, a business, you know, a big business. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to do that, but I wanted the magic of what kiss put into the kids heads, you know, that escape. So from, from listening to you so far, it's like your salvation was connecting much deeper to the music that was healing you during a really rough time. And that's probably the story of a lot of people trying to escape into something that gave them, uh, I don't want to say relief. It just inspired them out of a worse situation. I know that feeling too, you know, for filmmaking is my, is my music. So you're there and now you finally got your hands on an instrument and that situation, did you feel like your life was improving because you were now able to make music and connect deeper to the music that was healing you? Um, no, because I, I, at that point I would get scolded for playing, you know, I'd turn that music down in there. And, uh, you know, later on when I did have a little tiny amp playing along with the stereo, I found a way to put a jack into a, my sister's stereo. I blew, blew, you know, blew the speakers out of it, you know, and then it sounded better because the speakers were, you know, distorted. So now I had distortion because I couldn't afford fuzz boxes and all. But playing, I didn't feel anything until I did a talent show at school. And that changed my whole life because I won the talent show. And I got up and uh, the, I, you know, I played really loud and I played like Ace Freely. And, it was, and the kids in the school and the auditorium thought it was the coolest thing they ever seen. And the principal's up, comes up to the stage and the top of his head was bright red you know he's like turn that down and i walk over to the amp in front of all the kids you know and i look at him and i just turned it all the way up man to 11 you know <laughs> and he just so, he, he was just so frustrated his head turns red and i'm blowing the kids minds in the school and i won the, the talent contest and that was at you know uh, right before lunch and after lunch i was like walking down the hallway with the school jock and the most popular girl in the school, I, I all of a sudden was in a group of, of the most popular kids in school because I did that with the guitar and they couldn't believe it. So that was a huge turning point in your life. It was the best thing ever in my life. The best feeling I ever had. And, uh, you know, my daughter being born was the greatest thing, of course, but there's no sexual uh, experience I've ever had that was better. It was it was spiritual, you know, to stand in a dark room, everybody gets quiet and they're looking at you. And then you turn on this, this talent that you have, and then people start cheering it like a football game. And then the louder I got and the crazier I played, you know, and I, of course it was ace. So I was making a lot of noise and it, it didn't matter really what I played, I guess, you know, but I played ace and the kids were into it and they dug it and it made me popular for the rest of the year. And in the, in the, for the rest, of the, not only that, it, it, it propelled a band being made from the, from the class, some of the school members in school that we put a band together and we got to rehearse in the choir room. And then we got to play some shows later on that year. So we actually put a school band together that was rock and roll. 
So that very first show, though, proved to you, you proved to yourself and other people that you could make rock and roll, that you can get on stage and you can impress people enough for them to want to see you play live. Yeah. And have the authorities come up to me, which were the teachers and say, you won, here's an A plus. And the principal later to come up to me and go, you know, I should suspend you, but that was awesome. You know? (laughs) So do you think a lot, a lot of rock and roll stars, especially the ones that we're going to talk about forthcoming in this conversation, ones that you met later that you were on the road with, do you think a lot of them had a very similar situation at school like you did? Maybe their first dose was that battle of the bands or going on stage. You know, uh, of course, it's easy in a nutshell for me to say my influence was Kiss and Van Halen. That's it. A little bit of Ted Nugent in the beginning, or in the middle, just a tiny bit, because there was a space of time between Kiss and Van Halen where I was growing up a little bit, where I was... I was catching on the Kisses act, you know, it was like, okay, you know, I need a little bit more. I need some music that can challenge me. Okay. Did and you ever still, think at that time you'd end up working with those guys? Cause you did. Well, no, I working with them. I dreamt of seeing them in, in, in Chicago, you know, at, at the amphitheater, man, you know, the, I wanted to see kiss when they had the original Kiss, when they came, you know, this is like 1978, 79. And I had their posters all over my wall. And, you know, you got to remember, they just weren't, it wasn't the music also that I got into. Uh, my dad had disappeared. He wasn't there for us. My dad, was, my stepfather was abusive. My mom excused it. And I wanted the, the, the personalities of Kiss to be my friends. It was almost as if they became my friends, like they meant something to me as people, you know, Gene Simmons, Ace Freely, Peter, I, I looked at those posters and I, I thought, and I don't have a big brother. I looked to them like, you know, I needed them to, to help me. And, and I suffered horrific anxiety at that stage as if I was, you know, the panic attacks, I couldn't even, uh, I'd get sick at school. My mom would have to come pick me up, you know? So, yeah, I mean, Kiss was like my, the dad that I always wanted, the uncle I never had, the, the, the friend I never had. So. so it was this incredible, incredibly difficult childhood. You know, it was a, it was a rough time, but you found salvation in, a, in particularly Kiss and your guitar playing. Yeah, it was a horrific time for me, man. It was right at the crossroads of my life, 12 years old. I had this dog that was 11. I, I, I don't remember getting him. And, uh, you know, he, he, he died of old age, you know, and I lost him and it was horrible. So I was going through this huge depression, man, of, uh, the dog was what helped me along up to that point, I guess. And then after that, my dad's gone and I had this abusive stepfather and he was knuckles, you know, I mean, he, he did, he'd be in prison today for some of the shit he pulled on us and did to us. But it, I got, I dove into my own world and that was, uh the stage, the lights, it looked to me like the lights on the stage were soothing and warm. The lights, there was space on the stage and there were friends on stage. There was four or five people on stage that were friends and that were in a family and the lights, and they were separated from the crowd. And do you feel like in a way, you know, 
everything about that situation, people cheering you on, you being able to play and create your music, the reaction of the crowd, all of that is either transporting you away from the pain that happened previously and creating new new days for you. New, well, new avenues all the way. Because, yeah, huge avenues because later on when we were taken away from my mom and dad by my grandparents because of it was an abusive situation and, and we begged to pretty much get away and my grandparents were great. Uh, my grandfather was the greatest man in my life, you know, but when I moved in with them, I, you know, I was immediately in a band down the street. And then the next thing we had, which happened to Van Halen early on uh, in, in junior high, we're now the backstreet kegger party band of the town. So now, and then also we're playing at school, fun, you know, uh, school uh, prom or, or a school concert or something, you know, of that nature. We'd play that. We'd play backyard parties. We would play at the church for wedding receptions, you know, and we're very young, you know. It, later on, later later on in Chicago, this is where I was born and raised, South Side, uh, 17 years old with a fake ID playing uh, Luigi's and, and playing the, the South side Chicago bars, you know, playing a kiss song or, uh, you know, whatever was popular at that time, you know? So yeah, man, it led me into a partying world of friends and they all got high and drank and I drank, but I never got to the drug part of it. I, it brought me too close to the anxiety I suffered under the bed. Sure. But you, you were able to escape. You were developing your skills as a guitar player and you were meeting new people. At what point, because I'm sure at, at that now, now at that time that you were kind of having a relative feeling, not the exact one, but as becoming a rock star, right? I and mean, people were excited to see you. They knew your band. At what point did you make the decision now, okay, I'm going to make this transition. I want to, I want to make it bigger. I want to take this all the way. Or did you not do that? Yeah. Well, what happened was, is, uh, you know, we're playing in the high school stuff and in the backyard parties. Then we, you know, high school passes by and then there's, can, do we want to go to college? Well, hell no, I couldn't do that. You know, I couldn't do any of this. And some of the guys that were with me didn't want to do it. And a couple of them worked in the steel mills out there following in their father's footsteps. So we had this band together. So our new goal was, hey, man, we're going to be the greatest South Side rock band in the world. And so we ended up rehearsing in uh, Sticks, Dennis DeYoung's original childhood house uh, in Chicago Heights. Uh, it's a little further south, but we ended up playing in uh, their original rehearsal space in the garage that their father had soundproofed. And how did that come about? How did you discover that that was the place where Sticks rehearsed? You know, we played these parties and people knew of us. And this guy goes, hey, man, you know, my parents are pretty cool. And they and they heard they heard you at that one gig that we did. It was outside thing, a bash. And they, you know, and they know that you guys need a rehearsal space. And so come on, you know, they, come on over and rehearse. And we rehearsed there for months. And uh, it, if they still had their logo, their kiss, their or kiss, their Sticks logo was still on the wall. And it, it was right off of Chicago Road. It, it, it was, that was the first taste of, wow, somebody famous came from here. And the neighbor next door come banging on the door with a baseball bat. And the, and the, the, the neighbor said, you know, he, that same guy did that to Sticks. So if, you know, if I ever meet Dennis DeYoung, I'm going to tell him, you remember the guy with the baseball bat? 
<laughs> it's your, you know, it's your band rehearsal, but I never did get to meet any of Sticks, you know, work their shows and seen them in concert, but really never got to meet them and ask them that question. But yeah, I, it turned into kid stuff into, Hey man, you know what? I don't want to go to college. I don't want to do anything in life. I want to make it. And at this time, uh, the great Eddie Van Halen's album comes out, you know, and they're already on their second album here. What was the, and, and the first one was for the people that don't know. Van Halen one, uh, it was 1978, uh, recording. And what was the first track off of Van Halen one that really hit you where you were just blown away? Okay. So here's what happened. I'm into Kiss a little bit and into Ted Nugent. And we were playing 18 from Alice Cooper at the backyard parties and uh, Hot Blooded and things like that, you know, Song Boston, things that were around the same time. And then one time my sister, and it always happened with my sister where I discovered artists. That's how I discovered Kiss really, because she brought the first album into, you know, where I first heard them and went, wow. So basically what happened was, is uh, my sister's in a room and I hear this, siren and i'm thinking i'm running down the hallway tornado you know i thought i'm thinking it was a tornado siren going off in the village because we had the tornado sirens you know oh wow yeah so i'm in the basement i hear this you know the intro to uh running with the devil is a siren that they recorded it's actually alex van halen's volkswagen horn they took off the car recorded it and then ran it backwards and dropped it and so when you hear the very first thing on a van halen album is a is a is a huge siren sounds just like a tornado uh siren so i run up the hallway i'm like sis there's a tornado she goes no this is this is my this is this is this and then so then she's playing this album and the first thing that struck me was uh jamie's crying and i'm thinking this is the most this is this song is stupid (laughs) oh oh jamie's crying i think this is the most stupid song i've ever heard you know and she kept playing that song over and over because that's what she dug. And then she left the album on and uh, it did it again from the beginning. And then I heard that drum and then this guitar solo came from nowhere. There was no music with it, which I never heard before, except on the Kiss Live when Ace would do a little solo. But on an album, boom, I hear this song. It's this guitar solo. And it was, a, 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 it was like an... A, 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 like if we were being invaded from Mars or something to me, that's what it was like. That thing blasted and I heard that and I knew it was a guitar, but I couldn't believe it was. And I couldn't believe anybody could make that sound. Not even Jimi Hendrix. I was like, what the hell is that? Who is that? You know, go in my sister's room and I play it over and over and over and she's get out of my room. I'm sitting there, you know, with her, with the album cover in my hand, looking at this, looked like a, a, a young Mexican guy, you know, with the razor stubble and stuff. And I'm, you know, he had this guitar, you know, had these stripes all on it, man. And like this guy, whoa, who is this? Eddie Van Halen, you know? I listened to the album over and over and over to this day. Wow. To this day. To this day. I listen to that album today. If you get on my Facebook, I'm playing a song on a radio for my dogs. You really got me. Uh, that album changed my whole life i wanted to be eddie van halen from that moment on and it was a lifelong lesson to me about that and had anyone played guitar like that before eddie van halen had anyone sounded like that even remotely like that nobody like i said and everybody knew it at the time too that's why yeah the closest thing i ever heard in a fluke 
even even Ace Freely didn't sound like that, but he did solo in Doctor Love. He he pulled it off in the studio and he did a cool solo, and I thought that's got the meat and the magic that Eddie brought to the table when he played, and uh, just barely. But when I heard Eddie do the, the things he did on that first album, uh, it was a spiritual thing, man. I was like, this guy is unbelievable. And now that you mentioned that, you know, and I want to talk about this here and there throughout learning about your adventures, your journey, is that where, what do you think that is? Is there something, and some people are going to say, no, it's not. And I'll tell you exactly how it came about. And it's like, well, there's another level, things we can't see. Is there something you believe, let's say, I'll, I'll frame the question out this way. Do you believe that there's something a bit supernatural when someone like Eddie Van Halen comes along and plays that way, because not only is he unique, but think about all, and I know you, ha- you have, including yourself, all the people that someone like Eddie Van Halen affected and inspired to make music. It's, I think it's more profound than people realize. Well, I found out early on, my drummer never idolized anyone. We were huge Black Sabbath fans as a band. Bill Ward was the guy. and. Later on, we met Bill Ward and Lance, my drummer, was trying to collect rent money from him because he was managing a rehearsal studio. And Bill Ward was actually broke and giving drum lessons at this point. And I'm like, there's your guitar, there's your drum god. He's like, he just never was impressed with fame or anybody else like that. Nothing. He didn't have a hero. You know, his still working dad was his hero. For me, I was trying to get away from Chicago. I was trying to get away from my upbringing. I had a different upbringing than he did. And I wanted to do something different and outstanding, something beyond belief. And uh, so what happened was, is I got this feeling when you say spiritual, yeah, I ended up like, it's hard to explain, but it's like an orgasm. There's a feeling you get when you have an orgasm that you don't get in anything else in life. The feeling I get when I hear the right song or the right memory or something that it's a feeling I get that's as good or better than that when it's, when it's, uh, you know, when it's nurtured, when it, when it comes up, Eddie's done that a few times playing. It's not sexual. It's, it's, it's spiritual. The magical sounds that he made on the guitar. Some of the songs, sometimes a song will bring it out in me. It just makes life. Okay. You ever drive down the road and a a song comes on from your distant past when you were a kid and it just makes you feel all fucking warm like a blanket and good. Oh, yeah. No, music it's has blown me away as much as movies have. Yeah, it's like it makes you feel good and warm. Everything smells better. Everything's clearer. Everything's brighter for the moment that that song plays. And, and music's magical that way. And so I went on a huge – that was the high I wanted. That was the drug I wanted was I wanted that feeling. And I thought the person that brought it to the table every time was Eddie Van Halen. The way he wrote the guitar, the way he played it, the way he wrote music. I got warm and and I felt like I was on a surfboard in California every time I heard Eddie play guitar. So not to get too deep into, you know, technical uh, guitar playing just for the rest of the audience, but give us a little bit of of that. What, What is it about Eddie Van Halen's ability that a lot of people have a hard time nailing. A lot of other guitar players just can't do it. What, what can he achieve as a guitar player, as a technical guitar player or musician that a lot of people have a hard time feeling? Is it? Yeah, well, the thing about Eddie was is that he listened to the same people we did. Eric Clapton, Black Sabbath, you know, Tony Allen, the same people. 
and he, but he all of a sudden did something on the guitar that no one ever did before. And no one ever has done after really people have tried to copy him and some people might steal a vibe copying him, but they never quite get it right. He always did it different. And I don't know how he did it. And that's what is the magic of it. If I find that out, it, I might not like it. You know, did he sell his soul or something? I don't know. He just does has a magic. That's and and again, like I, I want to have that discussion like no one really has before. You know, when someone says they sold their soul, there are these basic broad strokes to it, and that Faustian tale where you sign a deal with the devil, you get fame, riches, fortune, and then it spirals down into some abysmal situation. Now that has happened, but is on a metaphysical level possible for someone to sell their soul? A more subtle, I guess, subtle level, even though the effects are the same. Do you, where do you make that decision to sell your soul? How does that happen? And we can revisit it throughout your journey, but just just at first, like touching on this subject matter now that you mention it, what do you think selling your soul is? I think everybody uh, comes at a, to a point in their life whether it be wanting something so bad as a musical dream or uh, being an actor or a writer, they want it so bad that they pray to God and, and make a deal with God. And some people might make a deal with the devil, you know? And uh, I I think there was times, you know, I would, Oh dear Lord, you know, I, I feel the magic. I saw Eddie playing live one time and it was unbelievable. I says, oh, dear God, I'll do, please, I'll do anything to be able to be like that and do my own thing. I want to be this guy, but I want to be this guy being me like nobody's ever done it before. What? Please lead me there. I'll, I'll do anything. I'll be, I'll be greater than Danny Thomas. You know, I'll, I'll do good things in life. I, I'll, I'll, I won't do drugs. I won't hurt anybody. Uh, feelings. I'll be a good person. I'll make this happen, man. You know, I, I you know, I'll, I'll do great things. And maybe that is my version of selling my soul. I don't know, making a deal. See, to me, that's the antithesis because you, you know, your promise was to be on the straight and narrow. I think maybe it's it's complicated, you know, like selling your soul could be, all right, man, you know, like remember Bradley Knoll from the band Sublime, you know, his perspective or Hendrix's perspective with heroin was that heroin was going to make them better artists. And that in turn, in, for, in the form of the heroin is, is, a, is a metaphysical form of selling your soul because eventually it's yes. going to take you out. Yeah, the Beatles did it. They, they, you know, they, were, they did drugs big time and now they don't. The survivors and they wouldn't. And they're like, if they had to do all over again, wouldn't do it. But it did change their writing, you know? I think the conceptually... There, you you are selling your soul. We 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 haven't taken into account in all these years. Many people just don't take into account. There's so many other levels of existence, and so if you're saying, "Hey, man, this dangerous drug, heroin, I'm going to shoot this in my vein because it's going to give me some amazing songs, and maybe it will," but there's a price to pay, and in that, I see as selling your soul. And you, there's so many examples of of that, you know, that youthful club, you know, they call it the 27 club, 
they all dying at this young age. And a lot of them were involved in that particular drug, you know? Yeah. I think, you know, to be honest, I would be too chicken shit to try to sell my soul or to do something to that uh, level of doing a drug because I might not come back or I might not be the same when I came back. Um, I think that, uh, you know, people have decisions every day and it might be considered selling their soul. Okay. So now that we've said that, I wouldn't agree with you selling your soul. I wouldn't do it. And what I'm saying is I think there's a, there's a harder road because it's not instantaneous, like putting a spike in your vein and then all of a sudden getting this euphoria that inspires you. The other is now through the mind and concentration, which someone like Frank Zappa never did drugs. And look at what he created. (laughs) Yeah. You know, there's people that have, they don't need drugs, man. They, they, They got it. You know, it's unfortunately Eddie Van Halen did drugs and, and alcohol, but he, he really got into that and it, over the top of his, his genius talent that diminished it in some ways that stopped it even, you know, there was many years he didn't continue on doing anything different. Sure. Know, because eventually it's going to eat you alive. So you know? that's, yeah. Kind of a, is there something you could take? Yeah. Well, you could, alcohol, drugs, uh, you know, like you, you can, do things in life that have that are selling your soul, I believe. And it, it's, it's come up a few times in my life where I thought that's exactly what I'd be doing if I did that. And I'm not going to do that. And sure. Not even in a, so, a, you know, not just a physical. So level. you were committed, you were committed to not messing things up in that way. And you, you had had your own way of thinking and even prayer and meditating on things and practice and, you were getting better at what you were doing. What was the next step? What was the next level where you felt, hey, man, this is growing. This is this is going forward. Well, uh, me and my drummer, Lance, and my singer and bass player, we, we decided to go to L.A. And we loaded up in two cars, a, a 71 Riv and a 63 Impala. And we loaded up our equipment and we headed to L.A. We broke down in Salt Lake City. And... Uh, we ended up living there most of our life after that. And my three, two of my friends still live there and one of them died there. So we, we broke down in Salt Lake city on our way to LA. We ended up going to Las Vegas into San Diego and up through LA and San Francisco. And we, and we ended up going back to LA many years later and playing the club scenes and living there and working jobs there and doing what we had to do to survive and write music and play. And we played the clubs and uh, that's where I, learned a lesson in, uh, or got the opportunity, I believe, to sell my soul spiritually or doing things that are against my, my uh, better half to succeed in my dream. Does that make sense? Yeah. What, um, I mean, in what form did that, uh, and we're not, you know, tonight we're not talking about, we're not selling anything to the audience in terms of religion or anything. We all have our personal views, but I, I think this concept is a real thing metaphysically. Selling your soul conceptually exists. And so I thought it would be a great discussion with you as somebody who's been through the world of rock and roll and and really observed a lot of different, extremely famous, even immortal people, if if you can call it that. Their music lives on forever. And so now that you, you mentioned that in particular, can you give me, would you give me more details about that particular 
if you want to call it an opportunity that you passed up. I, I lived in, in Hollywood with my band uh, and we were uh, rehearsing a lot and we were trying to break into the club scene. And if you play Gazzari's or the Troubadour, you paid to play. And what that meant was is uh, the management would give you a hundred tickets and you sold those hundred tickets for $10 a piece back in 1985 or 86 or 87. And you would sell those tickets, but you would buy those tickets from the management. So you're in the club. We want to play here. You play a demo tape for them. Do you, do you have a video back then? It wasn't like today, you know, in the mid eighties and stuff, you know, do you have a demo? We put a cassette in, in a blaster, you know, and play them a song. And then, uh, you know, yeah, here's a, it's a thousand dollars. Here's, you know, some tickets, a hundred tickets or whatever, you know, and uh, you'd sell those tickets and you better damn well sell them because if you didn't, you didn't get your money back, you know, or you'd break even, you would pay to play. So now you sold these tickets, anything above and over that at the door was your, was your pay. And, you know, you would get so many uh, drinks for free. Bill Gazzari was pretty good with the musicians if he liked you, you know. Uh, Van Halen went through this. David Lee Roth was the guy he went to. And they did the same exact thing. And the bands that drew the, the, the that sold more beer and alcohol in those bars by having a larger crowd were the bands that played more and more often and ended up going, you know, get, getting signed, getting getting looked at, you know. And you and you weren't really fond of that process at the time. You were against. I was it. intimidated by it, man. I was like, God, you know. Uh, we rehearsed uh, behind Guitar Center in storage units in the summer. It was like an oven inside the storage unit, you know. And we're rehearsing, and we would hear a ruckus. We'd take a sound break. We'd hear another band rehearsing, and I guess there was two or three bands that were doing the same thing we were doing, which was against the the storage house rules. We would rent a storage unit and then we would put our gear in there to store it. But then we would run extension cords to the nearest outlet and practice there. And one time another band was doing that and they were extremely loud. And uh, the guys in my band like doing drugs and getting high. So we heard this music and we walked up a hill around the back of the complex to another storage unit. And it was Guns N' Roses rehearsing. You know, and this was the Guns N' Roses. This is the Guns N' Roses on Appetite. This was uh, a couple of years before Appetite, and they were there rehearsing. And here's the scene. I walk up. My drummer already knew one of the guys in the band and was selling him drugs. I don't know if it was heroin or cocaine. I don't know what it was. But the drug scene was huge then. Uh, Slash actually was making money selling drugs. And uh, he would sell drugs. He's admitted to that selling drugs and pot and things of that nature to survive by guitar strings, you know, and, uh, you know, there's slashed in, in, in the storage unit, sweat pouring off of them. There's an amplifier speaker or a monitor over there with a hot plate on it with a can of pork and beans on it that had been on there too long. And the, the pork and beans is boiled over and rolling down the side of the speaker cabinet. And there's mattresses. Yeah. There's mattresses lined up against the wall with pillows and blankets still on them. Cause some of the guys were living there, you know, See, a lot of people don't realize those those rough days for bands that forthcoming turned into legends, stadiums, selling out stadiums. And in their early days, they're in a storage facility, you know, cooking on a hot plate. A lot of people don't get that. Yeah, hot plate, uh, the smell of dirty laundry, uh, the road cases and things are out 
in, on the asphalt in front of the storage unit so they could have room to stand and rehearse. And there's beds leaned up for sound, but you can tell they were made to sleep on. There's a couple girls there and they're rehearsing. And yes, I recognized a couple of the songs they were rehearsing from, from Appetite. It's clear as day. My bass player, he's no longer with us, but him too. Uh, we walk up at first and they're in the storage unit, but Axel is sitting out on a road case with a with his microphone with a cord stretched out about 10 feet outside of the the uh, storage unit. So it's cooler and he, you know, he can really hear what's going on. And he's just sitting there and they're not playing. They're just writing. And Axel Rose is sitting on a road case with a piece of, you know, a notebook and, and a pencil writing or a pen. And he's sitting there writing songs. And we kind of walk up and he gives us this, this horrible look like, oh, fuck, you know, this is, you're disturbing, you know, our rehearsal. Uh, he goes, hey, man, you know, this is a closed rehearsal. Uh, and the, my, we, you know, my guys were pretty good guys in the band, but I was kind of a, you know, that's kind of an ass. I, I look, I look like, you know, Robert De Niro. I look behind me and I look above me and I go, looks wide open to me, <laughs> you know, cause they had the door open <laughs> and, and, and he, well, I mean, you know, first of all, nobody should be put on a pedestal. I don't care if they're famous or not, but. But at that time, you you all, in terms of your band status, if that's what you want to call it, were all equal, right? You were all rehearsing in the same they were no, They weren't Guns N' Roses. They weren't famous. We didn't know who they were. We never saw them in our life, never heard of them. We just walk up and there's Axel. He's sitting on a road case with his red hair and it looked like he had yellowish green teeth and he didn't look well. He looked like a, a skinny roadie. And he was sitting there and this is a closed rehearsal. And I was the big guy because I was the healthy one. And I would have put him down in 10 seconds, you know, and a couple of the other guys would have too. You know? <laughs> and I look at him, I go, it doesn't look like it's a closed rehearsal. And right in the middle of that, he, he, I go, we're actually rehearsing down there and you're drowning us out. And right in the middle of that, someone in the, in the, in the, in the band inside recognized my bass player. Hey man, come in here. You know, and a bass player sold some drugs. And it kind of broke that up, but it didn't turn out too well between me and Axel. He handed us flyers. My bass player, Robin, had that flyer in his bass case where he kept his strings through our whole career after that because of me, because uh, that I was cocky to him. And then when we turned around and walked away, I wadded up that flyer and threw it at my feet two steps away from Axel Rose that he had handed me. And I was shaking my head. And I, and I mean, I just said, it looks like an open fucking rehearsal to me, dude. And the other guy's going, well, we're rehearsing down here. And he's, Axel's looking at me like I'm a prick, you know, and I'm, I thought he was being a prick. And then he goes, well, here, come see us if you want. And, and I just took his flyer and wadded it up, threw it on the ground. And Robin folded his and put it in his pocket. I turn around. Now, a lot of people don't, you know, I, I had learned of this while back from watching the metal years that so flyers were a big thing back then for all the bands you had to have one and and that's how you got people to come to see your show there was no you know for the people that are a little younger there's there was no internet back then you had to physically walk they were selling the same tickets to the same clubs we were we they were no bigger than us at this point and you know walking back my drummer who was 10 years older than the rest of us goes dude you should never do that because you never know who you're going to meet that you stepped on on the way down trying to climb up again, you know, or, and I said, and I laughed at them. I go, they sounded horrible. They'll never make it. They'll never make it. And it did. It sounded terrible what I was hearing. Right. And that was probably the story of a lot of aspiring professional bands at the time, including your own and including Guns N' Roses. Where 
in terms of the Faustian idea, what, at what point does a band like that, like Guns N' Roses, when you ran into them, when you were an equal band, maybe better, much better, um, do they sign that on the dotted line and become something else? And how do they get to that point? Good question, man, because uh, it was a year later or so. Uh, my story goes that I ended up leaving Hollywood because I, I despised the, the scene, the, the, the drugs the lifestyle, the scene. I, it was not how I was brought up with my grandparents. I, I was actually married and had a wife and dog at home when I went out to LA the second time. I I got the hell out of there. I didn't want to sell my soul. And I had an incident that came up that was just that. And I found out what my answer would be. And I, and, uh, you know, I went home and never went back. And then do you do you are you okay with sharing exactly what that yeah, was? Yeah, actually, uh, I worked at Grauman's Chinese okay. Theater, and I needed extra money because there was four of us living in a cockroach motel hotel behind Grauman's Chinese Theater. Our dumpster was right behind Grauman's Chinese Theater, where the alley was. Danny Bonaducci was actually living in his car next to that dumpster. Okay, and uh, we and he was homeless, and we actually had an apartment with a washer and dryer in the hallway. We had some porn star live upstairs. I can't remember his name now, but my bass player did a lot of drug deals with people up there. And, uh, you know, we would have rock stars coming in for drugs all the time. Uh, C.C. DeVille was one. You know, he was in our apartment many times uh, doing heroin uh, with some of the bandmates, you know. It was horrible because I didn't even get high. I worked at Grauman's Chinese Theater trying to follow a dream, you know. And uh, so I took on a night gig because there's always a lot of partying going on. When we weren't rehearsing, I would go back and I would take a bus to the studio lots and I would sell, I wouldn't sell, I would give tickets from my manager to uh, tourists to come back at nine o'clock or eight o'clock to be driven to the, the sets of uh, Married with Children or Night Court or Chachi in Charge. Uh, or in the morning, sometimes if I was really desperate for money, I'd get up really early and go back and we would do the today, the, you know, the, the today show or one of those types of things. And I would bring 30 people with me in a, in a, in a bus from, from uh, the theater to the, to the sets for them to have audiences. And then we'd sit there and they'd have a comedian come out and entertain us. And then they'd say, do this. And this applause sign comes on, clap, do this. And then they would roll the show. And so we would watch Married with Children get shot. Mr. President with George C. Scott, uh, shows like that, the Munsters that was redone in the 80s. Uh, I brought tons of people. Well, doing that, in doing that, I met a man that was a, a an agent, uh, and he had a studio. He was a, uh, you know, he had many, many child actors under, in, in his business. He owned a whole, I still have his business card. I'm not going to say his name because it's, you know. I, I won't do that here, but I have his business card and I'll take a picture of it and send it to you. But anyway, he uh, was a, a big guy. He was bigger than me. He was in great shape. And he, I met him when I had a crowd. He goes, hey, he goes, you want to you want to go on the set with me to uh, Mr. President? And I go, sure. He goes, I have some business with uh, George C. Scott. And I go, really? And he goes, yeah. So he showed up at my apartment. I told him I live right behind Grom's. I was sitting on a steps. He pulls up in a in a. Uh, a Porsche, a red Porsche convertible. And I get in and he takes me to the studio to, uh, and brought me backstage. And he was great friends with George C. Scott. I'm standing there talking with George C. Scott, you know, and 
like, like I knew him and he was very interested in me. He was talking to me and he was like, Oh, great. You know, and they were doing business. I don't know if he was one of his actors or what the hell the deal was, but that night I'd already known him for a month cause I've seen him on all these shows. And he would, he was an agent for Eddie Munster for the new Munster show that was being shot. He, he, he named off a lot of names to me that I probably shouldn't mention that are famous actors now that, you know, that back then were, 12 year olds, 14 year olds, 16 year olds, Johnny Depp, uh, people of that nature, you know, uh, Leonardo, actors of that caliber that are now famous that were that were in his agency that were beaten. It was in the Tower Record uh, building and there was a studio there where they did acting lessons and they even had their own uh, makeup and hair artists where they cut their hair. They, they took your your headshots and they they put your career together for you and managed you, you know. And that school still exists on that business card. Uh, the person that I'm talking about, I believe, has passed away, had cancer and passed away. But anyway, uh, come drive me back home and I'm sitting in his convertible. It's California, you know, and talking to this guy. And he's like a man's man, just a cool dude. And then he just leans over and puts the moves on me, man. Like put me in total shock. You know, hands between the legs on the knee. Uh, hey, man, you know, I can make things happen for you. How do you, how do you, the, the first thing he said to me before he did any of that was, so Jeff, how do you feel about, uh, signing on to, to signing on with us, his organization, his, his, uh, agency. And I'm like, well, yeah, man, you know, I, I've been an extra before I've done some extra work out here. Sure. He goes, no, I mean, you sign on, we're going to take some pictures of you. You're going to be groomed and taught. You're going to get lessons. We're going to, we're going to put some effort, some money behind you. We're going to make, make this happen. And I says, great. He goes, how do you feel about cutting the hair? And I says, oh, I won't cut my hair, man. <laughs> He's like, you won't cut your hair. I go, no, no, man. I'm in a rock band. We're here. This is my dream. I'm, I'm working, at, you know, I'm doing all this to support my, my, my dream. I'm in, I'm in the bad boys, man. We're, we're playing the clubs. We're going to get signed. You know, I, I'm in my 20s. I, we're going to do this. Yeah, but maybe you could, you know, wear a wig or something. I can I can get you some parts if you cut your hair. He wanted me to cut my hair. And I said no. So we got off that subject. And then he leaned over and put the moves on me when he found out I wasn't willing to uh, be groomed. And he put the homosexual advances on me big time, grabbing me like, uh, and it's very intimidating to get grabbed when you're a pretty good sized guy yourself and you work out by a bigger guy. Sure. I mean, I heard the story Terry Crews told in the middle of a party, man, that, that happened to him by a very similar guy. Uh, and the thing is, it happens to women. It happens to everybody. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it was like the guy was like, uh, you know, Kelsey from the Chiefs, man. He's a big guy, you know, good looking blonde guy. He had, the, had everything going for him, you know. And Sure. And, and this is the thing. That is on that metaphysical level, what I truly believe is selling your soul because it's something you normally would not have done. And now you've got this thing offered to you and there's a price. And the price is you're going to do this thing now, maybe more than once, maybe a bunch of times, something that you're ne you would have never done otherwise for fame and fortune. And you turned it down. I, I'd do the back, same and have. Back then, man, I had the looks. I'll send you some pictures. I had the, I, I did nothing but weight train. Uh, you know, I'm six foot tall. I had the hair, the golden hair. I had what, I had the David Lee Roth thing going as a guitar player. And I had the look. And 
it, it was good for the band. You know, I always played shirtless and all that. We had the image, you know, and this guy took it on himself to, for a personal joyride to, to, to molest me is what I, what I believe. And could he have gotten, gotten me somewhere? Absolutely. Probably. I probably wouldn't be sitting here uh, in this room right now if I had taken his advice because he offered me quite a chance at uh, cutting my hair and signing up with an agency and getting roles. And he begged, he literally begged. And the thing is, how many people do you think in his agency, all these famous people over the years that had to go through all of them? Because that's what he told me. I, I ended up, he was trying, he, he tried to talk me into having sexual, uh, you know, um, not, he, he, he just, he wanted to fondle me and not have me do anything. You know, he wanted to have oral sex on me. And I'm just looking at him turning red as a go. And I was pumped. I was pissed. And I'm like, fucking, how dare you, man? You know, I had no idea this was coming in my head, I'm saying. And when he put the moves on, I moved closer. I pushed his head really hard to the other side, violently got. And I got my answer was made up for me. I got out of the car and I slammed his door and I just kicked the sh- kicked the hell out of the side of his door. And I turn around and walk away. You want to know what he said to me? And I know you can I know you can say it. Exactly what he said to me. I know. What did he say? As loud as he could, he screamed, you'll never fucking work in this town, buddy. Oh, I've heard that well, before. And I that's got what work. he said. <laughs> I kicked his car and he's like, you'll never work in this fucking town. I'll guarantee you that. And I'm like, fuck you. And I turned around and I walked in. So this raises a question. Did you see a lot of people doing things they normally would not have done in in that scene, in that that rock and roll scene in the eighties. Yeah. We had, I had a guy that was a, a music genius. His mom and dad sent him out to go to MI and he was our roommate and he was a very, like a Mormon type of guy, but he had the look and he had the long hair. He had the Eddie Van Halen boyish look. He had everything going for him. And he started doing the drugs to fit in because we, we would go to a party and Duff would be there from Guns N' Roses and some, you know, some, there'd be people in the room from other rock bands that were drug addicts. And, I wouldn't participate in the drugs. So therefore I was not, I was kind of like, Ooh, he must be a narc or he's, he's outside the club. He's not in here participating with us. You know, you you don't do the drugs and you don't do the scene. You kind of, you don't fit in unless you're uh, lucky like Gene Simmons and you do it without playing the game. There's a definite game that you have to play back in the mid eighties to make it in, in, in a, in a, a hair band. You know, Guns N' Roses, Van Halen, any of those deals, you either drank like a fish or you did cocaine or you did drugs because that's how you got in the offices and that's how you met the people. And that's how you got in the club. So that in itself to me was selling my soul. I refused to do it with the drugs and I refused to do it like Madonna, I've been told, did it. And names I will not repeat that are famous now that did it from the same person that I had met. And, and I believe I could have been one of those people, you know, because some of those people weren't there then and now they're here. And I, I saved the business card of this person that did this to me. And I, it was in my wallet for many years. My wallet was put away with all with my bar cards and things from the 80s and 70s. And one day I was going through my wallet and I found that card and I couldn't believe I still had it. And I Googled up the guy's name and he was a huge producer and 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 agent he had many things under his belt he had a whole or and the agency still exists in the same space but he just wasn't around anymore and i think i read that he had passed away or died from from uh cancer or something something to that respect but 
I wanted to find a picture of the guy, but I could, never could. Seems like those guys were in Legion and still are in a way, you know, because again, everybody from, let's say, Harvey Weinstein to the gentleman who, uh, and I forgot his name, who attacked Terry Crews, who's a huge guy at a party. Those guys are in abundance. They're, they, they basically ran the whole show. So you could only imagine everyone getting famous because yes. of this you know, kind as well of- as I do, there's a room. Eventually you go into a room with one person or two people and they look you in the eye and they say, do you want to join the club? And I'm telling you, that's joining their club. In other words, you'd be surprised what, what happens in, in Hollywood. There are those who say that this quiet town holds many secrets. Legend has it that beneath this very tower, a dark force had its eyes set on the children. We were told that what was going on there was for the benefit of humanity. What would you say to the people who say, well, all these children were kidnapped and murdered and you were a part of it. What would you tell them? You I tell did them? approve of it, but there was nothing I could do about it. They wanted a large number of programmed boys to be used for mind control operations. And there are others who say it's still happening to this day. I don't know, I for myself find it a little suspicious that all the evidence has been conveniently destroyed. Let's put it this way. If you're sitting there with 20 guns pointed at you, what are you going to do? Whatever the hell they want! Watch Montauk Chronicles now for free on Tubi, Plex, Roku, and available for download on Amazon and Apple TV. Rock and roll bands is coming. It's going to be the biggest show ever in the Hampton Coliseum with Van Halen. Girl, you really got me now. The 1984 tour comes to Tidewater Wednesday night, 8 p.m. at Hampton Coliseum. Van Halen with 24 tons of sound and lights. Tickets are available at all Ticketron locations, including Tracks, Mothers, Birdland, and the Hampton Box Office. Wednesday night at Hampton Coliseum, Van Halen. You now have fair warning. Van Halen's 1984 tour is unchanged. Get your tickets now for Van Halen Live at Hampton Coliseum, Wednesday night at 8 p.m. One of the world's hottest rock and roll bands, Van Halen, an FM 99 music event from Cellar Door.
Again, a lot of people don't realize that roads travel to get to that dream. It's so hard and so many people don't make it. So here's, I, I have a question. So you're, you, you made this decision not to proverbially sell your soul or just literally sell your soul to this guy, okay? Who was, who was making this promise if you did this thing you normally wouldn't do. You're still pursuing your dream after this regardless. What was the next stage in your journey? What happened next? Well, I went back home and devoted myself for the next 10 years to my wife and my dog and a, a landscaping business and a wood shop that I created. And I made quite a bit of uh, success with a little wood shop making uh, replicas of antiques and cedar chests with my brother-in-law. And at the same time, I had a landscaping business where I made it, some of the best friends of my life were illegal Mexicans that had come over and, and, and ended up helping them get permanent citizenship here. And uh, to this day, one of those uh, people owns my my uh, old landscaping business now and brought his family here and is doing really well. Uh, you know, and then some of my musicians that didn't make it in LA came back and worked for me on my landscaping crews, you know? And that was doing yeah. well. And so what got you back out on the road? That next chapter of the story is where you encountered Eddie Van Halen and a whole bunch of other people. And what were you doing at the time? So basically what happens is you ever see planes, trains, and automobiles? And, uh, and, uh, Steve, Steve Martin is on the, on the bus and he's going home and he has these flashbacks of John Candy. You remember that? Yes. That happened to me on the plane when I left Hollywood. I was on the plane and I was headed back and I, I had my Marshall head. They put it in the cabin of the plane with the pilot. Can you believe that? And my guitar was in the overhead and I go back home, but the, the I had a, 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 a mosaic a thing happened in my head of what I had just gone through in Hollywood, all linear, like in snapshots, you know, uh, uh, from the time that I got nose to nose in a fight with Danny Bonaducci on a street corner when I was trying to sell our band's tickets and he was trying to sell his autograph. You know, uh, there was a time when my band's rehearsing and we got interrupted by a huge knock at the door, which was just about kicking the door off the hinges because we were loud and we had a bar across the door, and I opened the door in the middle of the night, and there's Fonzie standing there with a, with a, with a lens around his neck. Henry Winkler, you know, staring at me. Hey, guys. <laughs> hey. Kick. And my drummer won't stop playing because he's, you know, you know how drummers are. And I'm like, dude. Henry comes in and standing there. He goes, guys, I'm shooting a movie across the street, and we're picking you guys up. You guys sound great, but hey, man, you want to come have dinner with us? What, what, can, can we can we work something out? And he was very cool. And, and we walked back with him to the movie set and had dinner with uh, Billy Crystal and Alan King and Henry Winkler and a bunch of other stars. And what, what movie was it? Oh, Memories of Me. Memories of Me. Memories yes. of Me. And I knew they were shooting a movie there because it was made at uh, Grauman's Chinese Theater, which I worked at. And I was an assistant manager. I, I would walk down uh, uh, in front of uh, the Wax Museum and everything uh, with, with Henry Winkler. And Henry Winkler we walked up to a homeless guy playing guitar on a curb and we stood there for probably 20, 30 minutes, me and Henry Winkler. Cause Henry says, take a walk with me. Cause we heard someone playing guitar and we walked up like they did with us finding us. And this, and Henry started throwing songs at him and this guy could play anything Henry threw at him. And he played it so well. Henry was putting $20 bills, $10 bills in this guy's cup, you know, on the curb, a homeless guy. It makes you wonder about the gentleman on the curb. His 
his ability to play, right? You're listening to this guy. He's blowing you away. And we don't know his story. We don't know anything about him. Yeah. Henry's like uh, uh, Edmunds Fitzgerald. Uh, he'd do this. He'd start the song out. Perfect. Perfect pitch. Perfect tune. You know, uh, you know, he would do a Simon and Garfield. He'd start out and whatever Henry Winkler popped out at him, the guy started playing. And we were just, and it was like 10 or 15 of those songs. And I, I bet you Henry gave him 80, 80, 80 bucks to a hundred dollars back then. In his, in his. Did you ever wonder what got him, the man on the street to the point where he was at, but he retained his ability? Like what made him homeless? Did you think about that? What I thought of him was, uh, and this is Henry Winkler said that Henry Winkler's a hell of a guy, hell of a nice guy. He, we were amazed by the guy's talent and how clear he was and how good he was. But uh, I remember Henry Winkler when we walk him back. I go, that guy's incredibly good, and he goes, I bet you he's one of the happiest people we've ever met. That's what he said. I bet I'll bet you he's I'll bet you he's one of the happiest people that we've met that we've ever met. So that makes, okay, so that's really interesting to me. So imagine, if you will, the gentleman on the street said no to any offer for him to sell his soul, kept his music and understood the purity of knowing how to play and still affecting people walking by. And what maybe Winkler was somebody that held on to his soul as well, if you think about it, because he seems that like well, that know, type he, of guy. He told me, really yeah, out. he told me back then, because uh, I spent a lot of time standing around with him and, you know, I, I hit it off good with people. I don't know how I do it. I just hit it off and I did. And he used to tell me, you know, I had a, a, a tough, I'm, I'm dyslexic and because I told my, I, you know, I wasn't able to finish high school all the way, you know, and that I, because I had to leave, I, you know, my mom and dad and my, uh, the situation I was in, I went out on my own early and, uh, he had similar problems with uh, dyslexia and being made fun of him. He had a tough life, you know? And so you relate with that, you know? And you're like, it's really weird. And uh, we know people together like this where you think of them as something else, like Fonzie. You know, this is every now and then you got to pinch yourself. Oh, man, wait a minute. I'm standing here with Fonzie. No, man, I'm standing here with this great guy, Henry Winkler, who's probably one of the nicest guys I've ever met. His head is on a very level plane. And, he, and he's- Sure. I think there are a lot of people that made it that didn't sell their soul. I, and I think that's a misconception. People think that everybody that makes it sold their soul. I think maybe a, a majority, maybe, but I think that- and, You know, the weird thing about it was when this happened, you know, Fonz, uh, Happy Days was just taken off the air. So Henry Winkler was still that- guy he was still that the face was the same you know uh the happy days ran from like uh what was it 73 74 to 82 or 83 or something like that and now we're into you know 86 87 it was only three or four years before that that henry winkler was portraying fonzie so it all you know it was really cool to to be with someone that's still, you know, you, you just can't believe the contrast between the, the real person and the character. And, and that also happened in rock and roll. My persona of Eddie Van Halen was completely different than what I thought it was. So you're, so okay, so at that time, so really interesting, you're meeting these people, you're having these encounters, you see this man on the street, and it, it gave you a moment of thought, I'm sure you thought a lot about it at the time. What was the next stage of this? Because now you're back into the rock and roll world in a different way, but now working with very famous people, and some of which were your heroes. Completely, yeah. 
uh, I met a, a man named Lad Anderson, and he worked for the IA Local 99, and he had he was had huge seniority. He was way up there, like number two, number three. And he asked me, you know, I played bass for him at a couple country shows because he was a country singer. And he asked me if I would be interested in working some shows around my musical career. And I said, absolutely. It's the, it's like working a carnival job, you know? And so I, I, I worked, uh, you know, Stevie wonder and I fell in love with it, you know, and I did like Tiffany and bands of that nature that I oingo boingo bands, things like that. And I told our steward, uh, Mike Schoenhart at the time, I says, listen, man, uh, if Van Halen ever comes to town, I, I would, he looked at me before I could finish the sentence and he goes, I've known you long enough already to know you're the first one on the call, you know? So it happens. And I, Van Halen comes, I can't wait. And I start, you know, I, I work the Van Halen show and, uh, I had met Eddie Van Halen, you know, in 1981, uh, as a fan, uh, at the hotel they were staying at, which is a long, long story. And it's very interesting, but I had met Eddie at that point. This was the first professional time meeting him where I was there for a purpose. I was being paid, uh, you know, I was being uh, uh, paid professional to be there. And I, I just want to say really quick before we go further on, on this thread. So this is destiny is something it's so, you know, a life complex, you say, you know, when you were going back on the, the plane, you were reviewing your life like trains, planes, and automobiles. There's going to be another time where there'll be another time when you do that. And I'm sitting here listening to your life in short, you know, in this really cool interview, but it's a short version. And I'm thinking that your destiny was to work with these guys and you, and there's something more valuable and I think your experiences then being the drugged out dude that got some money and, you know, more girls than you usually did and some fame that you didn't get or whatever. And then you crash and it all gets taken away. In your case, you, you found the value in everything you loved since you were a yeah. kid. And it was about to come full circle now in a way I think only you would appreciate later on. Yeah. So, okay. Am I right about yes, this? Uh, you know, it took forever for me to come to terms with not getting signed and being 59 years old, almost 60 in a month. It took me forever to realize that it's a good thing that I didn't make it. It's okay. I was supposed to do this journey to find what real happiness is because most of those people that I had encountered and worked with were not happy. And Eddie Van Halen. Was well, one thing I want to say, and I don't mean to cut, I have no interest in cutting you off, but I have to say this. You're still alive. And next year, you might come out with an album. And everything you ever wanted was given because you, you know, look, if you believe that there's a cadence to life, that there's a clockwork to it, the story's still going, my friend. So saying you didn't make it just means you didn't sell out in a way or you didn't give yourself away. And not at that time, but, you know, it, what a difference a day makes. You know what I'm saying? Like, Everything can change tomorrow, my friend. You meet so many people. You know, I did this job and, and, I, and, and it taught me the reality of it. You know, who these people really were. From Barry Manilow. Barry Manilow's a, a wonderful human being. Wonderful person. Michael Anthony from Van Halen. A wonderful human being. You know? Uh, 
there's so many different, you know, Chuck Berry. I mean, I, I, I hung out with Chuck Berry for a whole day, driving him around in my car. All right. I heard he was a madman. You have to tell me the Chuck Berry story. Well, you know, it was a, it was a, an IA encounter, you know, I was professionally called by, by uh, Mike, our steward to, to drive up to Deer Valley and, and, uh, not do a load in or a load out unless I wanted to, which was the generic, you go load for two hours and you unload at the end of the show for some easy money. Um, or I could do both. And, uh, I decided, you know, I wanted to work the show, you know? So, uh, I was no fan of Chuck Berry. I thought Chuck Berry was the guy that was in, uh, back to the future, you know, the black guy, the guitar guy, the, the short guy with the baggy suit that did that duck walk and wasn't very much interested in him at that point because my guitar, uh, my, my, everything I learned about guitar hadn't been to that point yet of blues. It was still the metal guy, you know, but, uh, so I go up there and, uh, I, I find out I'm the runner which you were driving around in your car and pick people up and you do things. And I was told by Jason McNeil himself, who was United Concerts owner and producer to, to go pick up Chuck Berry at this hotel. And I and you know, back then we didn't have phones in our hands to call people. And I'm like, great. What hotel? And he goes, we don't know. <laughs> you know, he told me that we don't know. He goes, but we know there's three or four of them, three of them that we think he's at. You, you, you got to do this quick. Go get in your car. I, I go, my car, my, my 1971 Ford Granada, four door with the rust. Yeah. Run down and see, cause we got two other guys out going to the hotels. So I went to one hotel and he wasn't there. I went to another one and they said, we couldn't tell you if he was here. And I'm like, this ain't going anywhere, you know? So I'm, I get in my car and I'm driving back up to Deer Valley to the hillside where the concert's at. And way up in the distance, I see a shadow walking with a guitar case on the left side of the road. And I pull up and it's a black man. And I I'm, I pull off the shoulder and I'm driving right behind him. You know, I can hear the gravel on the tires crunching. And I stick my head out the window and I go, hey, you Chuck Berry? He turns around with his guitar. He looks at me, he goes, fuck you, man. He walks up, <laughs> he walks up to my car, walks around the opens up the, the back passenger door and throws his guitar on my back seat, gets in my car, slams the door. You know, he's like he's looking at my car, cracked window, rust everywhere. And he goes, aha, yeah, I figured, you know, and we're driving and, you know, it's a, a drive back. You know, I get him I'm driving up there and I'm talking to him and ended up telling him that I was a guitar player and that Eddie Van Halen was my guitar hero. And he asked me how I felt about him. And I told him, I, I says, I have to be honest, uh, you know, I, I'm a metalhead, man. I don't know much about you, you know? Oh. <laughs> and he appreciated it. And how did he react he just, to that? He just looked at me and goes, well, you're going to find out tonight, you know? And and then he's like, by the way, listen, when we get to the set, or we, we get to the show, I don't want you to take me to the dressing room. I need you to do something for me. I go, what's that? He goes, find me a hiding place. He goes, I just blackened my girlfriend's eye back at the hotel room. And I believe the police are going to be coming up possibly to, to arrest me or look for me. And I go, well, you know, I, I didn't know what hotel you were staying at. And I, I, this explains a lot of stuff, you know, and uh, he goes, just put me somewhere where, where it's hard for them to find me. I go, it's not going to be hard once you do your show. He goes, yeah, but they'll let me do my show and then we'll figure it out from there. You know, he had a local band open up, play all his music with him. And I hit him under the stage, you know, the stage was, five, six feet off the ground. And there was 
in the center of the stage, I put up a little round drape and a little table. So you were hiding Chuck Berry underneath the stage because he was deathly afraid that the police were going to come because he punched his girlfriend in the eye. Right about where the drummer would sit on the stage, underneath, deep, dark, under the stage, with all the metal. And I took out a couple runners and changed positions, and I made a little black circle of drapes, and I put a couple little tables and some chairs and took out his uh, his suitcase and his guitar and laid it on the table and, and uh, worked on the guitar for him. And I changed a couple. Well, I actually ended up changing all the strings on it, and then I changed a string that had broken on the guitar, and I saved them. I still have them to this day. How did you feel at the time that he had knocked his girlfriend out and you're hiding him and now you're an accessory to the black eye? He was intimidating. And here's the thing about Chuck Berry that a lot of people don't realize. He's a big, mean guy. He was. He, 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 he's, he's, I'm six foot tall. He's, to me, he's, I don't know if he was wearing disco shoes, but to me, he, he stood very tall. He was much taller than me. His shoulders were really wide and he was a, a, a mean, rough, tough guy. You know, he's like, I, I don't want, you know, I want you to hide me here. Don't fuck me over this and that. And he was throwing these demands at me and I did really well with what he requested and I took it up. And then he sat back in his chair under that stage and I brought some, some drinks and things that he required back there. JC McNeil comes back and the guy pretty much, this is JC McNeil, the owner of United Concerts that done every concert you can remember from like the sixties. And he's pretty much like, okay, you know, thank you. And he leaves and it's just me and Chuck. And I'm, I, you know, I was asked to be his guitar tech because I had done that a lot being in, in the union and working these shows because I was a professional guitar player. I would get put, if I wasn't doing a light or load out or load in, I was doing stage hand work in the guitar division, you know? So here I am. I, he goes, would you check out, check out the guitar, you know? And I put it on and I, and I realized all the, I, the strings are rusted, Chuck. He goes, yeah, he goes, uh, there's some in there. Uh, you know, he's, he wasn't prepared for nothing. No amp, just a guitar, one guitar, one case with a bunch of strings out of the, you know, not in order or anything. I change all the strings on his guitar and I'm sitting there tuning it up by pushing my ear on the top horn because there's no amp. So I could hear the vibration to tune it. I get it in perfect tune. I stretch the strings all out. I get it in tune, you know, and I lay it on the table and I'm looking at it and he looks at me and he goes, a lot of people played that guitar. You know, and I go, I bet. He goes, Elvis Presley played that guitar. <laughs> this is what he's telling me. I go, Elvis played this guitar? He goes, yeah, Elvis Presley played that guitar. John Lennon's played that guitar. I go, really? He goes, yeah. He goes, uh, uh, Paul McCartney's played that guitar. George Harrison's played that guitar. Uh, Keith Richards has played that guitar. Uh, he named off guitar players that were dead and gone. You know, Jimi Hendrix played that guitar. Did you feel anything when you were playing it, I mean, you know, with all these legends touching that guitar, was there anything before you knew that when you were holding it? Did it feel different? Yes, because it was it was a hollow body Gibson, you know, uh, ES series with the with uh, it was a double cut, you know. Uh, it was his main burgundy guitar that I, it was in the co- it was in his coffin with him at his funeral. You know, it was it was in the coffin if you look at his funeral pictures. Yeah, I played that guitar, and as I played it, I recognized, as all I remember, man, was thinking of him in that baggy suit doing the duck walk, because here I am a metalhead, and I'm in my 20s, and I pictured uh, Back to the Future, Michael J. Fox, that, yeah, this is the guitar that was in Back to the Future that they were trying to make it look like, 
That's what I remember thinking. And then I remember thinking, it's a hollow body. This is exactly the kind of guitar I despise. It, it, you can't even play metal on it because it would feed back like crazy. And it, it was a Gibson. It had a fat neck on it. I was into speed metal guitars then. So, you know, it, but it was an honor for me to hold it and play it. But see, I didn't know anything about Chuck then, so I didn't know that was his main guitar. I didn't know that's the one he had his whole life. I didn't know any of this. So in other words, you you hold a lot more value in it now. I had no value in it whatsoever, man. I Chuck Berry to me was like Fabian, you know? I, right, but now, looking back in hindsight, you hold a lot more value in it. Three days later, I did, because our steward goes, you never seen, you know, you know did you ever see Hell, Hell, Rock and Roll? I go, no. What's that? He goes, it's a movie about Chuck Berry, man. Everybody's in the movie. And everybody in that movie's playing that guitar. Paul, Paul McCartney, John Lennon. And sure enough, I rented the movie and watched it. And there's the guitar. And there's everybody that was still alive when it was made playing that guitar. And uh, it was it was amazing. It was the it was the guitar in the movie. Uh, it was the guitar that uh, Keith Richard, uh, Keith, you know, Keith Richards tried to get backstage and uh uh, Chuck Berry had knocked Keith Richards out from being an obnoxious fan. It was a guitar he was holding when he did that. You know, uh, it wow. was his iconic uh, cherry guitar that he always played. And uh, yeah, I play. I didn't just play it. I changed the strings on it. I, I adjusted it. I did everything I could to it to make it sound sweet. And um, and, the, and the band that, that opened up was a local blues band that happened to know his songs. And they did a beautiful job playing his songs. You know, he broke a string on stage at one time and uh, kind of handed me the guitar real quick. And I'm going through his guitar case trying trying to find a, a G string because everything was wound up. I ended up putting the rusty one back on because I couldn't find it. He was totally unprepared. And uh, it w wouldn't go back in tune. I hand him the guitar. He's looking at his watch. I was so embarrassed because the crowd's all waiting. And he's standing there tapping his toe, looking at his watch. He comes over and he's pissed off at me. I hand him his guitar. He walks back and it's so badly out of tune. He tunes it up like they did in the old days, just by ear tunes it up and, and goes on with the show, you know? And, you know, uh, I spent a lot of time with him before the show, driving around, spend time with him. He's nice to me. He knew my name. We talked. But once that show started, I never talked to him or saw him again. I mean, it was like, bam, when that show was over, he was gone. And it wasn't me driving him to wherever he was going. I don't know if it was McNeil himself, but... He was uh, in, in terror of being uh, arrested for assault that that, that show. <clears throat> I know he wasn't arrested on that uh, that night at that place, uh, as far as I know. But he was definitely, I was on the lookout for police officers. So that that's one legend. Now, here's the thing. When you were a kid, particularly, you were blown away by both Kiss and Eddie Van Halen. And then you ended up working with both of yeah. them. Yeah. Correct? You know what happened? Remember I mentioned Lad Anderson, the country guy that was, he was like six foot eight tall, looked like a lurch. And he was a country yes. singer. Yes. Good friend of mine. He, he's high sonority. He, okay. So I had done Stevie Wonder. I had, I had done a, a Tiffany. I hadn't done Van Halen yet, but Kiss came. And I was excited about that because I had my memories of Kiss, but I was out of that fad at that point. But anyway, I'm like, oh my God, I've never even seen Kiss get to play. I never had that that blessing. I never had that opportunity as a kid. Uh, I wasn't allowed. So here I am invited to work as a, as a load-in and a load-out for the show. And so uh, Lad tells me, 
come at this time and I'll get you your pass. And I said, because I get a laminate pass. So I come in and I'd already worked a couple shows and, and I'd worked modern display. So I knew how to get into the arena through the backside. So I come in through the show and there's barricades and this kiss thing is with all the covers and stuff for all, you know, this is after the load in and it was like a break time. I come back to get my backstage pass and lad is standing in, in, you know, you know, when you see someone you idolize and you, it's like a shock, you know, when you see him in the color in life, you know, well, I'm coming for, uh, you know, back, back in, but I didn't have the right pass for the, for my loadout. You know, I had taken that pass off and I walked in, I walk up to lad. Cause I know lad. I go, Hey lad. And I stick my hand, I stick my hand out of Gene and I go, Gene, you know, like a, like a young kid, you know, uh, but here I'm what, 23 or something. I'm like, Gene and stick my hand out. And he goes, how'd you get back here? And I turn around and I look at the barricade and I point and I go right through there. And he goes, you know what I mean? Just like that. He thought I was trying to be a smart ass. You know, he's, he's like, he wanted to know how I got into the arena because he saw me walk up with, without a pass, without a laminate pass on. He's, so he didn't realize you were a gun for no, a No, he's standing there with Lad Anderson and this, you know, and I got the hair and stuff. And I walk up and I duck under the thing and I walk right up to Lad and him. And I walk up and I see Lad and Lad knows me. But I look at Gene and I'm like, Gene, how are you? It's so, how'd you get back here? And before I could say, I look at him like, uh, 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 right back there under the barricade right there, you know. And he looked at me and goes, you know what I mean? He thought I was being a smart ass. Like, how did I get back there? Oh, I walked in these right here. Anyway, Lad goes, no, he's okay. He's with the crew. And Gene looks at me and goes, oh. And then Lad handed me my pass. And I put it on right in front of Gene. And I stuck my hand out. And I go, Gene, it's so great to meet you. Right before, he stuck his hand out. And then he slapped my hand out of his way and goes, I got to play tonight. And that's how I met my, that's how I met my hero. Wow. So, Yeah. And that's the thing you got to be, you know, sometimes you'll have encounters that are fantastic with your heroes. And sometimes you're going to meet Gene Simmons on the wrong night. He was, you know, he was having a hell of a conversation with Lad. Lad didn't give a shit who he was. Lad was a country singer and he was 20 years older than us. He just standing talking to Gene Simmons. I don't even know. He probably knew it was Gene, but I walk in and interrupt their conversation and duck under a thing. And Gene, Gene is in control of everything, especially security. And he wanted to know how a fan got into the arena and up to him. That was very important to him to stop his conversation with Lad and ask me, how'd you get back here? And I didn't know what to say. I just said, I walked right through there under that barricade. And he took that as me being a smart ass to him. Instead, me, I should have said, I was, you know, I was freaked out. Instead, I should have said, oh, here's, I'm with the show and I'm doing the, the loadout, you know, and I'm, uh, and and then Lad would vouch for me, and it would have been great. But he thought I was being a smartass to him with that comment, and he just he pushed my hand away and says, "I got to play tonight." And then he looked at Ad, Lad and says, "I'll catch up with you later," and walked away. And Lad looked at me and shook his head and goes, "Wow, that guy's an asshole." And that's how I met Gene Simmons the first time. I mean, okay, now you could see it as that, and yes, he was being a little abrasive. But can you imagine being? Gene Simmons traveling the world with millions of obsessive fans. Like, look, I was on TV for a blip and I know what it's like to have a couple of obsessive fans. Imagine being Gene Simmons. Kiss took over the world and you had to be horrible. And you know yeah. what? 
It must have been terrifying. But you know, Gene was a nice guy because to his fans because there were some kids that had backstage passes that couldn't get on that side, of, but they were on the arena side that that Paul that uh, Ace Freely would play on, and they were up against the railing. And Gene Simmons walked over and was shaking their hands and talking to them like like he was their father, like "Oh, hi guys!" Right after he told me off, that's where he walked to. Right after he told me that, he walked up to some fans and was just beautiful to them. Was it possible, Jeff? Let me ask you this question. Was it possible you were being a wise guy to Gene Simmons? No. No. I actually <laughs> Okay, I'll, I, I'll accept I actually your was in such awe of standing in front of Gene Simmons and seeing him. And when he spoke to me and I recognized his voice and I stuck my hand out, I didn't know what to say. He asked me how I got backstage. And I said right through there. And I pointed. And that's how I, I really seriously was telling him that's how I got back here. And he took that as me being a smart ass. Yeah, well, and, and then he was very rude to me and slapped my hand away from him and says, I got to play tonight. And that's my. Do you feel like that kind of did that crush you? You know, being that you had such an impression from Kiss when you were a kid, did that? You know, uh, I, I look at Lad like he's later on, Lad would always tell me stories and other guy, hey, you know, years later, we're working. You should have seen Jeff when that happened when Gene said, look, look like someone stole his puppy dog, you know? It looked like he stole my puppy dog, broke my heart, man. So yeah, you know. Well, some people don't don't realize how. I guess they, you know, he. I guess his reaction to you, uh, he didn't take into consideration that you were an enormous fan, or maybe he didn't care, or maybe he was just scared. He didn't care. His know? security, his system, his. He wanted to go to whoever let me backstage and raise some hell as as a as an executive of his company. He wanted to find out why the rule was broken. Some fan got backstage. That was all he was interested in. And when he found out I worked for the local and I didn't have my pass stuck on me yet, I was going to get it from Lad. And he thought I was being a smart ass and I was working the show. I pissed him off, you know. And But then I worked many shows with Kiss and he was great. He was awesome. So you ran into him again after that? Many times. Yeah, I worked every Kiss show after that. Ever came and he ended up having a pretty good good working relationship. Yeah. I, I uh assistant guitar tech for Paul Stanley. And how was Paul Stanley? Was he uh very quiet? Yeah, very quiet, and he never makes too much eye contact with anybody. If you it, you know, he 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 was very quiet and, and not around a whole lot, but I worked for his his guitar tech. We unloaded, you know, did load in, then I worked with, with the guitar tech, we unloaded the cases. A case, a case came in full of guitars, and they were still in the guitar center boxes. They weren't even in cases, and they were cheap Japanese copies. And the guitar tech, we had already tuned up all the guitars. I, you know, from that tour, you know, the one that looked like it was like an army guitar with the camouflage and the, it looked like an army helmet or a jeep with the green, and that was his guitar then. And then his famous uh, Ibanezes and all that. We we I had hand, I'd taken those all out of the cases and handed them over and helped them take cut strings off and you know unwind strings and and hand them things. And I got I was fortunate enough to to change strings on a few guitars that weren't of fame, probably you know lesser guitars.
So I figured we'd take a little break and let the audience hear what Jeff's band sounded like in the 80s. This is Bad Boys with the song More Than She Can Handle. Now, and, and this particular time that you're referring to was 86-ish onward, correct? And in that time period, or just a little bit after, you started opening, your your band was opening for other famous yeah. bands, correct? No one as big as Kiss, because Kiss never actually got to uh, open up for Ace Freely in Salt Lake. But 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 uh, Ace was playing by himself, you know, uh, uh Peter Chris also. Peter Chris came to uh, Rafters nightclub in Salt Lake City. Uh, my drummer drove him in a rusty car to the airport. <laughs> and what would you say the, the biggest he's, band he's, that you opened up? You know, this is my drummer again. That we listened to Black Sabbath and Kiss, and here he is. Dry. He didn't care. He, he didn't have no stardom thing with anybody. But me, it was. Like, and what would you say? What would you say the biggest band that you and your band opened up for? Was? Uh Man, uh, Ariel Speedwagon. Um, let me think. Ariel Speedwagon, Peter Frampton, uh, Foreigner. Uh, we never did open for Sticks because that would have been a cool story to tell them about, you know, in the in the Heights. Uh, so many Edgar Winter, Guitar Heroes. Uh, open up for Ingve Malmsteen. Being a guitar player, that was wow. phenomenal. So wait, wait a second, Jeff. Wouldn't you say your band? And you, as a guitar player, opening up for these big shows was making it. Wasn't yeah, that I opened up for it? Greg Howe, one of the greatest guitar players of all times. Uh, uh, many, many, many people. I mean, it would go on forever. There was bands that were signed that were really big on MTV at the time, like Slaughter, Firehouse, uh, Nine Inch Nails, Sabotage, uh, 
bands of that caliber were coming through. It's hard for me to remember from the the, the late eighties, early nineties, all the you know sure. the- Well you were an opening band for the bands that you just named and you had all those inc- We opened for a band called Sweet twice and they were huge influences on KISS and and a lot of other bands. Uh the you know the ballroom blitz band uh Sweet. Right. So what I'm getting at is you you did make it. Your band opened up in concerts, in venues full of people, played in front of those people, and opened up for these other bands that were fantastic. But usually fifteen hundred to two thousand people in a crowded in a crowded club scene, yeah. It would have been like Motley Crue crowd. So what what was your at that time, what was your definition of, of making it? Getting an album, uh, getting a signed, doing an album and getting signed. Now we did two Bad Boys albums and they were great. Uh, Ronnie Montrose helped in the studio, uh, recording engineer helped with uh, Gilbert Rodriguez, our bass player, on some of that. Uh, I I replaced a really good guitar player named Chris Clary, who was a phenomenal guitar god. I mean, he wasn't famous, but he was as good as the famous ones. He went to New York to do things and and uh, invent. Uh, pedals and, and sound equipment for guitars. So, you know, I got to step in for a great band that already had, that had a great guitar player and they, they liked my stage presence and, and my rhythm playing. So I wasn't the lead guitar player of bad boys. I was in the hoods. That was my, my band that, uh, you know, when I went to LA a bunch of different times and played the clubs, clubs in different occasions, different years, you know, bad boys did really good. Uh, a lot of the guys are gone now, you know. Some of the guys were old, quite a bit older than me. But but you you still had that incredible experience. You toured with with famous bands. You played on stage in front of an audience. You had a band yourself. You lived your dream as a guitar player and as a rock musician. Well, let me tell you, uh, back with Paul Stanley there, when I was backstage working on the guitars, I was going to tell you, he didn't come around much, you know. But... I, the guitar tech tells me, open up this this anvil case over. I open it up. It's a bunch of boxed guitars, Japanese guitars, and I pulled out like six different guitars, put put them in a vise on on the stand backstage, backwards, and cut the necks with hacksaws halfway through. And I'm sawing on this guitar. So my encounter with Paul Stanley, the guy that got me into music, the first member of Kiss, the band that got me, that put my head into music. I'm standing there with a with a saw, cutting the back of a guitar neck, and I'm halfway through, and there's a tap on my shoulder. I turn around, it's Paul Stanley. He goes, "Cut that fucker more than halfway through. I almost knocked my teeth out last night." <laughs> yeah, I was cutting. I couldn't, you know. I knew what I was doing because the guitar tech, you know, and the guitar tech had already told me this. You know, I was I was putting a relief in the in the back of these gypsums for Paul Stanley that were made by a guitar factory for cheap and sent to kiss as an endorsement for him to break on stage and throw out into the fans. The very guitar when I was a kid that I just got them telling you the story about when I found in the dumpster with the broken neck that I hung on my guitar wall, sat and stared at and dreamed at for all my kid years, man, I want that guitar to Paul Stanley just broken through into the crowd. You know, man, I would love to have that guitar. Why does he break those nice guitars but I would love to have one. Lo and behold, you know, many years later, I'm the guy taking them out of the box 
and prepping them up and cutting the necks so that they would break easily for him when he pounded them on the stage. So a lot of people don't know that, Jeff. A lot of people don't know that they're scored and ready to be broken. Yes. The people that got the guitars, that took them home, they're not woodworkers, but someone that along the line looked at goes, oh, look, this has been halfway cut through. But yeah, I'd cut halfway through and then he would break it so that with the fretboard broke off and the truss rod would bend, the body would fly off the guitar, but the strings would still hold it together. But you would see the busted and twisted wood from the from the fretboard. But the, the structure of the neck is like a baseball bat made out of uh, maple. You take a guitar and hit it on the ground, shit's going to come up in your face. or It's like hitting the floor with a baseball bat, you know? And uh, he had done this every show for just like the fire trick. He'd break these guitars and so on. So, yeah, I was cutting up a guitar for that show and probably six or seven, seven other shows down the road. I was prepping those guitars to be broken and thrown out into the crowd to the very people that were just exactly like I was back then. So that went full circle. You see what I mean, how that worked, you know, a dream come true. Um, I didn't get the guitar. I mean, do you believe in a, do you believe in a grand design? I just remember staring at them albums in, in like, like they were gods and just being so wrapped up. It was my savior. It was my, my, it was my oxygen then in the, in the situation I was in with the abuse uh, and the fighting in, in the family situations. And it, it took me to a different place, that band. And here I was all of a sudden in that world with that stage and that sign and that logo and that, and, and them around me talking to me, telling me, make sure I cut the guitar neck so it doesn't hurt them. You know, uh, him feigning off the side of the stage and falling, you know, falling and cutting his arm on the on the railing on the his stage on the side of the stage that he would play on, trying to get off where Ace would play because he was feigning running up the stairs because his tech had a guitar around him and holding him up, and then him falling and cutting his arm. I couldn't hold up his whole weight, and he get he gouged his arm. I always wore black sweats on set, and you might have known that on the movie set that we did, but, uh, I like to wear a lot of black sweats sometimes cause they get dirty and you don't see the dirt. And so I was a, a guy in black sweats because you wouldn't see me up in the lights or and here's this guy in this sweatsuit on the side of the stage holding, uh, Paul Stanley passed out. Then the guitar tech takes the guitar off and throws it on the ground and runs up and grabs the other side. And we try and stand him up. He's not standing up. He sits back down. He lays across his roadies, uh, leg, I got blood all over my arm and on the side of my uh, sweats, you know. And I go, did he hit his head? And they go, no, he's out of oxygen. This happened This happened a couple shows ago. And he goes, you got to get oxygen. You got to get oxygen. I go, so I ran down. I go, where am I going to get oxygen? They said the the Utah Jazz's uh, locker room's right there, right down the hallway there. Go down with security. And I grabbed security and with all my might ran down and grabbed a, a security thing on wheels, and then the damn thing broke. I had to carry this huge oxygen tank over my shoulder with a with a mask on it. And then I get that. Think about that. Think about how many kids were blown away by Kiss, and you are one of the only ones, period, that that was in a situation like that with one of your, your rock heroes. Yeah, a big hero. You know, I get back with the oxygen mask, and, and, and the show, Gene Simmons does a bass solo to cover up this incident. And the crowd's into it. They don't know what's going on. Me and the guitar tech and maybe two other guys backstage. Gene Simmons knows what's going on. The drummer, uh, 
doesn't know what's going on. You know, the guitar player, whoever he, uh, Vinny Vincent or what, he doesn't really know what's going on. He knows Aces or uh, that Paul Stanley is having an episode, you know, and he was having lung trouble is what it was. And uh, we had him off to the side of the stage, still up on the ladder up there. And I crawl up with that tank and put the mask on his face and his head is right into my shoulder. I got blood all over my arm and I got kiss blood on me. And as I'm putting the mask on his face and holding it on his face, I go back into the magazines that I so badly wanted that were printed in blood. And I know you remember that. They put out a magazine, a, a, a comic book, a kiss comic book, a special edition. And they poured vats. They, they all took out a pint of blood out of their bodies on, on camera and put him into the ink vat. But here it is, you know, almost 10 years later. And I got his head on me. His body is on me in the, his guitar tech and his head is over into my, almost into my lap and I'm holding him. And I got blood going down my arm from his cut. And I'm looking at him. I put the mask on and he starts to, you know, he's breathing now and he sits up and he's got blood all over his hands. And he looks at me like with his hands open, like, where do I, you know, there's metal. And I just put my arm out and I said, right here. So he wiped his, both his hands on my shirt. And I looked at him and I was so close to him while Gene's doing his bass. And I go, I guess that's better than the comic book. And I said that to him and he just looked at me. He didn't wow. really know what I meant, but I just looked at me, put this blood on my shirt and I go, I guess that's better than the comic book. Unfortunately, it was a black, uh, black sweats. So I would show people and I'd have to move the light around and go, look, there's Paul Stanley's blood, you know. But Gene's on the side of the stage just playing. I have to know. I have to know. Did Paul Stanley get back on stage yeah. that night? Gene Simmons did his. Gene Simmons, I swear, he probably did a 15 to 20 minute bass solo. And if there's any news article or footage anywhere, it's left in the world somewhere on that show in Salt Lake City for, for Vinnie Vincent in that tour. They might mention that there was an awful long bass solo. But uh, yeah. Gene would do his bass solo, and then he'd walk over like it was his wife or his girlfriend with the look of fear, like his eyes were horrified. He didn't know if Paul McCartney was having a heart attack. He didn't know what was going on. These guys are, you know, older now, you know, and he's, and then he's like, okay. And then Paul Stanley stood up, had his oxygen, went back out, and they, and they did a, you know, they went on with the show, and they, they cut it early, though. They did cut the show early. I, I didn't get to hear a couple of the songs I really wanted to hear. And Paul Stanley really didn't have the the energetic show that he really did after that. But yeah, he had an, an episode of some kind of lung problem where he couldn't breathe. And he went unconscious and almost fell down a flight of metal stairs with me and his guitar tech there to, to hold him up and and help him with that. And it was, so that was that was cool, you know. And Gene and Gene was very nice to me, you know. He wasn't like he didn't know that two or three years earlier at a show, he, I was the smart ass that he thought I was, you know, he, he was just very nice, you know, Hey man, you know, thanks. Good job tonight. Thank you so much. You know, Paul Stanley patting me on the back. So that must've redeemed everything for you. You know, you had your, you, you essentially saved one of your heroes, helped save him. Yeah. How did you feel? I felt great. And then when he broke that guitar, it almost broke before it hit the ground. And I, I remember thinking, I got it. I mean, I went a little too far because it broke so easy, you know? Did you ever, okay, so I have to ask you this because like we're getting into the last quarter of this interview and this is fascinating to me. So you have all these desires, this true love for that music, for Kiss as a kid, for Van Halen as a kid, 
And then you have this horrible encounter with this freak agent who you're, you're kind of like, you turn your back on that world, but you come back to it. Let me ask you this. You come back to it and you, you get these profound experiences. You get to open up for bands. You are still a musician. Your band is formed. And then you get to assist some of your heroes. You're literally holding your hero in your arms and helping him survive at a concert. I mean, in a way, okay, for a guy who didn't give a damn about selling his soul, you got something much better for those experiences, in my opinion. I need to know before we close this whole thing up, I need to hear the Eddie Van Halen story. And so if you can tell me how you met your other hero. After, okay, 1979, Jamie's Crying's on the radio. I told you I heard this amazing siren and I heard this album that changed my life. At that point, Eddie Van Halen was in my head 24-7. All I did was think about guitar, music, making it, Eddie Van Halen, and how cool David Lee Roth was and how badly I wanted to be in that kind of band that brought that kind of vibe. The feeling was like I had been there before and Eddie Van Halen was in my place. And I thought, this is me. And I wanted to be Eddie Van Halen more than anything in the world, man. It was, it was guitar magazines would come out. I would go to 7-Eleven walk there just to get the guitar player magazine. Cause he was on every cover. And, uh, so what happens is, is, uh, I go to Salt Lake city with my band. We go, we're going to LA. We're going to make it, you know, we're, we're, in the two cars, a Riviera and a, an Impala. We go to Salt Lake, we break down, we meet girls, and we're homeless. We're living in our cars. But we have beautiful girlfriends, and they let us use their showers. And one day we're drinking beer, and Ellie, oh, this sweet girl, Ellie, she goes, hey, you guys going to see Van Halen? And I go, what do you mean? What? She goes, yeah, they're coming. They're coming, man. They're, they're Like, in two weeks, they're coming. Well, we were living in a car. We weren't even eating. We were selling blood plasma. I almost died, man, because they took plasma out of me and I went and almost had it, went into a coma. Yeah, I called paramedics and shit because I hadn't eaten in two days. We were staying at the Stratford Hotel for like $4 a night and giving blood and then going sitting in SOS temporary services with a bunch of winos and drunks for hours and hours to go cut mold off of cheese in a factory for $3 an hour so we could eat, you know, or have a pack of cigarettes at that point. Anyway. Van Halen's coming, man. Yeah. Uh, the two other guys, Lance, he, he wasn't of any kind of fame. Didn't, he didn't care. Oh, I don't, ain't gonna, I don't want to go see them if I have to, you know, we're going to, Hey man, we're going to go dig ditches for temporary service. SOS temporary service up in the mountains, install sprinklers for, for a couple of days. So we can buy Van Halen tickets. So it was me and Robin, my bass player that had the incentive to, to want it that bad that we went and dug, trenches in in bedrock we had blisters on our hands we had blisters on our blisters it was that kind where you couldn't even bend your fingers you know and we we get our our money and we get the worst tickets you could ever imagine with the back of the arena man was like the wall the brick wall was behind our seat you know what i mean and i'm on but i'm on eddie's side of the stage so i'm blessed van halen comes out and for the first time in my life there he is and robin was just not quite as excited, but he, he was, he followed me pretty much. And I'm like, look, there the man is, there he stands. There's the guy look. And at this point he wants to be a bass player, you know, 
and we and we were teaching them and we were you know we were a rock band a young rock band getting pretty good as a matter of fact but uh so we go to the concert and then we didn't have the same tickets as our girlfriends because they had bought theirs much earlier and they had like third row or something stage left and they were pretty girls and they all got backstage passes so as soon as the show was over when we go back to go backstage they're backstage getting in the limos and going with the band and the roadies and they look at us and they you're gonna have to meet us at home we don't have a ride you know uh robin goes well where are you going we're going over to the hotel utah you know so we knew where the band was staying so we walked to the hotel utah and we get there and we're there for hours and hours and there's no sign of van halen there's it, it, it gets to be like an apocalyptic type of situation no cars no traffic no noise but the Hotel Utah, and then this brown leather bus pulls up, you know, that's fully covered in leather, real nice bus, and another one pulls on the other entrance. And I'm standing with my friend Robin, and uh, right out of the blue, after hours of standing with only one person, and she was like stoned out of her mind looking up at the sky, you know, like on some kind of trip. Uh, Eddie Van Halen came out of a side door and went up to his bus, and we run up behind him and he's trying to get a key into the door and he's kicking the door and he's swearing and cussing. Fuck, son of a bitch, you know, that kind of stuff, kicking the door. We walk up behind him. There's a temple behind us. It's dark. And I yell at Eddie. <laughs> I fucking scared to piss on him. He jumps and turns around. And he's like, what the fuck do you want? <laughs> like that looks at, you know, I'm just stand, I just freaked out, man. It was Eddie, you know? I'm right behind him and I'm not even six foot yet, man. Cause I'm a young kid still. I'm like, Eddie, <laughs> you know, 1981, he turns around. What the fuck do you want? I'm like, Oh, he scared the piss out of us, man. The way he reacted, it was he really scared him and pissed him off. And he was like, what the fuck do you guys want, man? It's two o'clock in the fucking room. What crazy son of a bitches, you know, excuse my language. But, uh, I just stand there stood staring at him. And he looks at me and then he kind of shifts his weight onto another foot. And I'm putting my hand up real slow, kind of like I did with Gene. And he looks at me and then his eyes change and he, he goes, you guys want anything, man? An autograph? What? And, you know, Robin goes, no, man, we dug ditches for two days to get tickets. Look. And he shows him his hand, his mouth, you know, just, and he's, he's like, oh, fuck. And then he tries to shake his hand and he won't, Eddie didn't want to touch his hand. He's, no, that's okay. Blisters yeah. all over. He goes, oh God! He goes, and then it, uh, and then my hand's going up slowly, and then he, he takes my hand, and I take my left hand, and I got both of his hands in my hand, like he's like the Messiah. You know, I'm holding his hand in both of my hands, and I won't let it go, and I'm just staring at him. He goes, "Yeah, is there anything else you want? Are you okay?" And I'm like, just staring at him. I'm like, uh, "No, man. You know, I love you, man. <laughs> you know, like that kind of thing." <laughs> He's like, okay, okay, give me my hand back. He didn't say that, but he's kind of gets his hand back, and then I'm, and then he looks at his hand because my hand was totally blistered. He knew that I was. He knew what we had done to get to that show, you know. So he uh, can't get in the bus, so he runs back into the side of the hotel and disappears. And maybe another forty-five minutes goes by, and I'm standing by the bus because I knew he came out that door and this door is obscure. It's way off to the back. It's a, like a small door with a little awning over it and the big massive doors are up front. So this is like a back entrance type of thing. And all of a sudden I see a cart coming around the corner with this must've been 
87-year-old man, it looked like, old as hell, with the the red suit on and the gold thing. He had a box and a guitar case on there, a small box with a handle on it, you know, like a typewriter would be in, and a guitar case. And I knew right then and there who that was because I know from all the magazines I read that he carried his guitar, his baby, wherever he went with a box of hand tools and parts because he was always tricking his guitars out, you know. And he never left uh, the Frankenstein. Even if he didn't play it that night, he wouldn't have left it. You know? And the Frankenstein guitar was that famous red guitar with all the different stripes on it. It's the one on the first album that's black and white with, with, the, with, the, with the fire coming off of it. It's, it, it's the oh, one okay, that, all right. Which one was the, which, so which one was the red and white one with all the different? It's that one. It looked like it was it taped. It is that one. It's okay. It's the one I'm thinking. Later on, he did the second album. The guitar wasn't on that second album. He had another guitar that got buried with a dime bag. But the third album, he did all his albums with that guitar. Until the 5150 guitar, but he taped it up and painted it red after the third tour because people were copying him too much, his guitar look. So he totally jacked it up with red spray paint. And he had just painted it probably weeks before that show because I'd never seen it that color. You know, so anyway, it comes out and this old man puts the guitar, comes outside onto this red carpet under this, this red awning. And he puts the stuff down on the ground, like, because the bus is there. And he turns around and goes back in with the cart. And he's halfway down the hallway. Well, I saw Eddie come out following him at first. Eddie was behind him. But then Eddie turned around and ran back. And the old dude came out and he put the stuff down on the sidewalk. And he walked back in. And Eddie was gone. And the guitar in the box sat. Not, there's three people within any view in the, in the bus. At two o'clock in the morning, something like that, you know. And uh, is my Robin, he goes, can you believe this? That You know what that is? I go, yeah, that's that's got to be. That's the Frankie. He goes, you know, you could steal it, man. You could steal the guitar. There's nobody around. And I just stood there. So I walked up to it and I put my leg up against it. And I bent down and I picked it up. It's a guitar, all right. You know, I can feel it in there. And Robin picks up the case. I go, no, man, I'm just going to hold it, you know. All no sooner than that, I see Eddie running around the corner with big eyes like like saucers. <laughs> this guy come back without his guitar, right? <laughs> Maybe Eddie thought the guy was going to wait for him in the hallway or whatever. But Eddie realized whatever he forgot, that guy went out and put a shit on the curb. Most people taxi or something like that, and and uh, yeah, I could have stole the Frankenstein, the Frankenstein that night, one hundred percent. It was. But you wouldn't no, have. No. You wouldn't have stolen no. that guitar from me. It was in my hands. I had it. And uh, I could have walked away with it. But think about this. So, I mean, and I'm sure you have. But, you know, from my perspective, listening to this, it seems like you you achieved everything you your heart really desired. And maybe you didn't notice certain things along the way. You know, it seems more divine from your beginning where you idolized these musicians, you were, I'm talking about an extremely rare and small percentile of people that ended up in the situation that you did, where you got close to these people on several occasions throughout your life. I feel that, uh, I felt that I wasn't, I felt that people, people are destined for their destiny to make it or not, even before they try. But you have to try to at least, but you have to try. There's people that didn't make it that were destined to make it, but they didn't because they didn't try. They didn't put the effort out. 
And I believe I was one of those that was not supposed to make it, but I was blessed enough to be able to. I don't buy that, Jeff. I don't buy that you didn't make it. It's just, and I think maybe that is your only real flaw is that you don't recognize what I'm seeing here in this timeline. What I'm seeing here is somebody that did make it. Making it isn't dying of a drug overdose on a tour bus. Making it is you lived out your dream and you still are. Look, next week you could go score a movie. You could make a blues album. You could do whatever. And that could be a big hit. You're still alive. And so what I'm saying is this, this, this life isn't fully written yet. And so far, what I'm hearing is that you did make it. You just turned your back on maybe some ways of making it that may not have been right for you uh, or, or for anyone yeah, else for that you know, matter. The timing wasn't right. I had a decision to make, a choice. Was it my wife and my dog or was it this this career style where I was seeing with the heroin use and the, and the filth and, the, and, the, and what I saw, people that I looked up to, how they really were and what you had to do to actually pay the the, the, the fee to get into the door uh, and, and literally pay to play. And I saw the, the horror of it. The, it's a nightmare. And uh, I decided, no, you know, uh, I'm not going to do this. And I went back home and I was like, Eddie, cause Eddie never did any of that. He never tried. Eddie didn't want to be famous. He didn't want to make it quote, make it. He wanted to play music and record and the fame never was with him. He never cared for it. And it, was a black mark on him his whole life. He didn't like being recognized or being called out or being uh, treated special. And uh, he had dark, dark demons. You know, he was very, very troubled man. And uh, he had a real dark side. Yeah, he could be very uh, mean, which he had been to me a few times. I'd been screamed so, at by Okay, him. so what, what the audience hasn't heard yet is because you first were encountered, you know, during a time of a concert as a kid. You ended up encountering him again in your professional life. It was just like that night when he ended up thanking me for saving his guitar from being stolen and let me open up the case and take it out and play it right on the sidewalk in front of him. <laughs> That's how it was. He was nice. He was smoking a cigarette, looking at me with that grin. And, and I couldn't uh, play worth a shit. It was embarrassing. So, so many years later, you know, he passes away. It wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Eddie Van Halen was a very moody person. Like that time was, you know, he yelled at me twice and then he was very kind to me and put on a grin. The second show I worked, he comes in and walks past me and I wave at him and go, Hey Eddie. And he looked at me and goes, Hey, what? And then he kept walking. And then later on, he came back and patted me on the shoulder when I wasn't looking and kept walking. And then I worked with a guitar tech and he come in and he was very nice and smiley at me, you know? It was, you know, it's like one minute, hey, what? And then another show I did, he comes in and I had had, uh, it was uh, a friend of mine that I used to date and she was notorious for Consult Palace Security. Her name was Leslie. And she was very well-trusted and she was working backstage. She always did the backstage area for laminates, you know, and Eddie come in without his laminate and tried to get backstage and she physically held him and wouldn't let him back. And I walk up, I'm like, Leslie, that's Eddie Van Halen. And she well, didn't she realize really who he was? She didn't, wasn't sure. You know, she'd done basketball. She'd done everything country. She was an older lady. She, she, no, she really didn't know. She, but her response was priceless. You know, Eddie's just being an ass to everybody. And she, she tries to get back at his own concert. And she goes, ho, oh, oh, ho, where's your pass? But I'm Eddie. She goes, Eddie who? I'm Eddie Van Halen. I look at her and I go, uh, 
Leslie, that's Eddie Van Halen. And she goes, oh, it is? Well, I have it. I have a, I have written uh, directions from Eddie Van Halen not to let anybody back here that doesn't have a laminate pass on. <laughs> and Eddie goes, good job to her. And and she wouldn't let him back. And I finally looked. I said, Leslie, it's Eddie Van Halen. And she let him back. And then when he came out, he walked up to me and Robin, my bass player, the same guys that met him on that night. Years later, we're both working the union then. And uh, he comes up and he, you know, thanks, man. <laughs> you know? And did you think, I mean, did, do you think he had any recollection whatsoever of that night many years ago, you know, previous? Oh, the, the, when you, when you first encountered yeah, him, did he, I believe, you? I believe that he possibly even to this day would remember the time that the Frankenstrat was left outside on a sidewalk in a, in a city. He never, he wasn't even familiar with Salt Lake city, just left out on a sidewalk. You know, for like six minutes, just left on the carpet under uh, under a side door, just left there. And this is the most iconic guitar, one of the top three iconic guitars in the world, priceless. And yeah, I could have stolen it. Could actually, I literally could have stolen it. And so, I think to this day he would, if that was brought up, there was probably other times that were close calls, airports, and things. But he might have actually remembered that. You know. Sure. So coming full circle in this journey. You know, you began with music, bringing you out of hard times. And it seems that music really helped you out of hard times throughout the entire journey, especially when there were moments where you could have, you know, essentially sold your soul. You didn't do it no matter what. It seemed like you just refused to go in that direction naturally. And that's what's protected you because you never know, man, you might not even be here. You could have completely sold your soul. You could have, you know, ended up with a heroin habit. You could have killed yourself. You could have, who knows, done a million things that you didn't want to do and would have been, you know, what Henry Winkler told you about the homeless man playing guitar. He's probably happier than anybody, right? I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but so how do you feel looking back in hindsight at a life? How do you feel looking back in hindsight at, at your life now? I believe I was a happier person than Eddie Van Halen for most of it. And most, if it, you know, most of the years of my life and most of the years of Eddie's, I was probably happier than him most of the time than he was even with his fame and fortune and his good son, which was the light, the light of his life. And, uh, you know, to end this, I want to tell you something that happened and I haven't told anyone this. And it's, it's very, very, uh, hard for me to explain it, but, uh, I looked up to Eddie like, like the big brother I never had. I'd met him a few times and he had told me a few things in life. You know, at one time he told me, just play, man, be you. You don't need stripes on your guitar. You know, when I was backstage and I was like, man, I wish I was you. I wish I would have thought of that. How'd you come up with that idea? I wish I would. Hey, just play, play, be you, man. Not me play. That's what he told me. That's the advice I got from Eddie. You know, and, and he wanted me to always play and be me and do your own thing. That Those are the things whenever I t had the chance to talk to him that he told me. Other times he was either drunk or, or in, in un, unapproachable. But uh, spiritually, I always thought of him as the, the, the he had a magic on me with his touch of guitar. And his influence was unbelievable. And 
right at the end of my band, I had I, I got kicked out of a band called Craigslist Killers. We call ourselves the Killers, but it was Craigslist Killers, believe it or not. And uh, we were getting popular, but I ended up developing a, a trigger finger in my middle finger on my left hand. And it got so bad that I had I would go before gigs and get injections and to the point where my doctor says this went on for like two years and he would give me these these big huge needles he would stick into my finger into the palm of my hand deep into the tendon and into the into the whatever was the problem there he dug this needle in it was like it looked like it went in like an inch you know and he put this cortisone into my finger and a couple days the the shot would made me have to go to the bathroom. It was that bad. It hurt, you know? And then a couple of days later, the finger was okay. And then I could sneak playing. And then, you know, three, four weeks later, the finger would stick again. It got so bad that I'd wake up in the middle of the night yelling at my girlfriend, help me, you know, because my finger in my sleep, the fingernail on my middle finger on my left hand would go all the way back to my wrist. It would twist in a, like like a cramp in your foot and it would lock and I could not break it free. And it was, it felt like my finger was being tore off. So I would soak it under hot water, put ice on it, sit up for a half hour and then bend it and bend it. And then I would put the pressure on it and then it would click. And I, and even my girlfriend would jump because it made that noise. And it was so painful. Then I put my finger in, I put my finger in a splint. I go back to the doctor and he goes, okay, I've already told you this is unfixable. You need surgery. This is totally inflamed around the sheath. It, it, it's been like this for two years. It's damaged. And this is your eighth cortisone shot. I'm only supposed to give you three. So I had this surgery lined up. And then I canceled it one time because I uh, we had a really big gig that I didn't want to miss. And I had, I had it uh, set up for surgery. Now, I'm going to tell you, and my girlfriend understands this. My finger hurt so bad, and I was so broken hard about my finger. And I was back in the band and we were doing some cool shit right before COVID that I actually considered suicide. That's how bad I was feeling about, about my life at that time and my finger. My finger was unusable. I couldn't even use my hand at work. It hurts so bad. And now they're going to cut it open and I'm just not feeling good about this. And if I can't play guitar, I don't want to live. I think Eddie might have felt a little bit of that. I, I don't think I would have ever killed myself, but I, I thought about not wanting to live. That's how bad I felt. I got in that last shot. It got to the point where I could hardly play guitar anymore. And I got really frustrated and drank a little too much. And I offended my bass player's brother really bad on Facebook and got kicked out of the band. So now I'm really bummed out. Um, I wake up for work. My finger's locked. Okay. Again, and I'm just, okay, I'm going to do surgery. I'm going to call the doctor. I'm going to do this for sure. I'm going through with this. You know, I was going to call my insurance guy because I was, I was told to call my insurance, make sure this was covered. So I go to the coffee house to call and set up, make sure my, my insurance is going to cover it. And the first thing I see on my phone is from Wolfgang Van Halen. Uh, unfortunately, my, my father, Eddie Van Halen has passed away, you know, hit me like a brick in the right. I mean, like someone smacked me in the face, you know? I mean, Eddie was, Eddie, I knew he had had cancer, but he was beating it for 20 years. I didn't know he was that bad. No one knew it. 
And I get this in the morning and my fingers locked and I came back and I'm sitting there and I'm going to call and get this fucking surgery. And uh, it comes across on my Facebook. Not me, not even, and not because I was a fan. It came across everybody's Facebook. Eddie Van Halen has passed away, you know, just like a few hours before, you know, and, and I sat there in shock. I forgot all about my appointment my doctor and I sat there and I drank my coffee in the coffee house and I literally got choked. I just turned my Facebook off and then my phone started beeping because a lot of people know how much of a fan I am of Eddie's that knew that he passed. Did you hear? Did you hear? Click, click, click. I wouldn't even answer my phone, you know? And I went home. I, I just left the coffee house. I went home and I went in my apartment and I never played anymore because my finger hurt too bad. But I sat and I just put my hands in my my face in my hands and, and cried. Just I just cried, man. I, I and, and mostly for Wolfie, his son. I just cried my eyes out for him losing his father, and Eddie going at such a young age to such a horrible disease, and and that my guitar hero was gone, and I just felt so horrendously lost. I went in my room and I looked on the wall. I had the Frankenstrat that I had built years before hanging on the wall, and I took it off the wall. It had dust all over it, and I pulled my cord out and I plugged it in and I sat down where I'd just been bawling my eyes out with my little practice amp that was under the table and I crank it up and I'm just sitting there looking at the guitar, thinking about Eddie and about that time that, you know, I held it on my lap like I did Eddie's back in 81, the same guitar that I had replicated. And I just picked that fucker up and started playing my heart out like never before, like never before, Christopher. Okay. I played there was goosebumps going up and down my back and on my neck. Tears were coming down my face. I played better than I ever did before. And uh, excuse me if I get emotional. It's okay. I was doing things on the guitar and they were all Eddie's riffs, all his magic that I'd learned or tried to learn over the years that became crystal clear to me. And I played them and it sounded fantastic. The guitar sounded fantastic. I didn't even tune the guitar, you know, I hadn't played it in a long time. You know, I couldn't, and I'm jamming and I'm playing along and I'm, <laughs> I did eruption note for note, fast, quick. I was doing things that I tried before, like the, in, the intro to Mean Street that I always flubbed up and I played it perfectly and my hands were just doing magic. And I thought, fucking hey, you know, and then it hit me right then and there. I hadn't realized it. My finger was fucking healed, man. Wow. My finger was, my finger was healed, Christopher. You, you can take my, I don't know how to, how to explain it. I, you know, my girlfriend is totally with me. She was there. She believes it. She wasn't there when I was crying when this happened, but she knows, she knows what happened and she is blown away. My doctor was blown away. Um, the people close to me were blown away. I'm like, look, not only that, I have arthritis in all my fingers now, except for one. And it's the one that was the one that wouldn't work. My finger's never been better, okay? It's never been better, Chris. And I can play so much better now than I ever have in my life. What do you think and it was, this was? I think it was me crying out in the name of Eddie Van Halen and the heartbreak of his son. And me being a, a, a huge fan of Eddie and a devoted fan in the, all the love and light I ever put out his way somehow resonated when he passed away. I had lost my daughter uh, 
because of she was transgender and she disowned me and, and we didn't talk. And I, I was horribly depressed about that. I was in a suicidal type of a thought process. I, my daughter was gone. That would have killed Eddie. His son was his reason for living. I didn't even have my daughter, let alone a music career anymore or a band to be in. And I honestly believe that as I was playing that guitar and thinking of Eddie and in mourning of him and thinking of his son, I think something happened spiritually that came through me that was Eddie that, that, that let me loose like that and play like that. And it, here's the, here's the part that's the most amazing part of it all. That was October 6th, 1981, when I met Eddie Van Halen and played his Frankenstrat. It was October 6th, 2021, 40 years to the day that I was playing my Frankenstrat. And that happened to my finger and my ability to play. And so uh, I've told people, you know, many stories, but never this one, because it's too out there. It's too unbelievable. It's too outrageous. Uh, I, my girlfriend, I sat and it's not unbelievable. It's not, it, it's amazing. It's an amazing story. I came, I came to my girlfriend's front door and there was tears coming out of my face and she looked at me white and she goes, I know. She goes, I know it'll be okay, Jeff. I go, no, sit down. And I picked up the guitar I have here and I go, look, she goes, she, she turned white as a ghost. She, she's even more so than me. She goes, no, this, this is impossible. A week later, I went back to my doctor and told him the story. He knows who Eddie Van Halen is. He's 10, 15 years younger than me. He sat there in awe looking at me. He goes, this is a medical miracle, Jeff. This is absolutely a medical miracle. He goes, your finger was toast. It was even more toast here because of all the injections I put in it for you to play. There is no way your finger healed. It's impossible. And I go, tell me about it. I, I wanted to die. He knew it. He knew he was trying to help me because he knew I was almost suicidal over it. I go back every visit and he just looks at me and shakes his head and I go, never better. Never better, man. <laughs> Amazing. So with all that being said, I had this really good feeling with Eddie that day and I knew he was on my shoulder in some sense, in some magical spiritual way. I, I shouldn't say magical. His plane was magical. But his spirit was with me that day, and I believe it healed me. And that's my belief to, to my dying day. I 100% believe that. And it also came back to me what he said. And when I started crying and feeling that, I could hear his voice say, just play, man. Just be you. Just play. And my finger was better. So you know what happens now? I play all the time because I'm afraid he's going to punish me if I don't. <laughs> I well, play. I, and so, I believe. A week goes by. I, and, yeah. I believe throughout your entire life so far, because there's a lot more left, that you've had those divine visits and signs that kept that kept you safe too, man. That kept you safe. Um, you didn't sell your soul, and I think the rewards of that are still forthcoming. Like so many of them, you've had already, but there are more. Yes, after the finger healing episode, and I am putting this out there. This is on my, my dog's life, their souls, my daughter. My girlfriend is totally aware of what happened, and she is a believer. Believe me, this happened to me. I was healed exactly when I found out Eddie Van Halen had passed, and I was in a really bad way. And I know that there is, there is an angel on your shoulder at times, and, and I believe Eddie was my angel. And I, uh, 
I, t- I do what he told me to do because it came to me. He says, just play, man, just play. And then I, it came to me. He told me one other thing, be yourself, do your own thing. You don't need stripes. So over the last two years since he's died, I've dedicated myself to making my own guitar from scratch for my purpose of how I feel and how I play. And I feel that Eddie's with me on it every step of the way. And I feel that he would appreciate and love the guitar that I'm making. And it's almost done. And I'll send pictures to you. I can't wait to see it. And I believe that wholeheartedly. I believe that your chapters forthcoming are going to be amazing and I, and, and better than ever. And so it's like that, you know, I always thought like the, the perfect life would be that you grow old, you live a great life, you do all the things you ever wanted to do. And by the time when you're there and you're an old man and you, you close your eyes or a woman, right? Close your eyes and you're satisfied with what you did here and it's time to go. And so that leads me to my last question. And I know you believe there's more to life than just this physical existence. So when we do leave this physical existence, when you leave this physical existence, what will you take with you? And there's no wrong or right answer. It's whatever you say is right. What would I take with me when I leave this world? Yes. Wow, man, that's deep. Uh, the memories of my grandfather and uh, all the all my pet dogs I've had, because they're the, the best thing in my life also. So it would probably be, that's what I take, is the memory of my grand my grandfather who saved me and raised me. Who's, his name was also Eddie. Uh, memories of Eddie Van Halen and my my dogs and of course the love of my life my girlfriend debbie the memories just memories there's nothing i would take just memories Welcome back to Off to the Witch. I'm your host, Christopher Garitano, and I want to thank you for joining us tonight. Dreams are worth fighting for, and when fame is a potential element, often it comes with temptation and sometimes a test from the complex clockwork of life. Stay true to your soul, always, and the result will never fail you. Until next time, try to enjoy the daylight.